Friday, April 28th at 7 p.m. Visit WAMU.org slash events to register. This is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR News station from American University and HD at 88.5 at WRAU, 88.3 Ocean City on your smart speaker and online at WAMU.org. I'm Michael King. It has been a pleasure spending part of my weekend with you. I'll talk with you next time. Have a great night. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and we've got a bunch of Hollywood stars for you tonight. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in Bold Venture, Marsha Hunt and Hume Cronin in a reprise of their film roles in A Letter for Evie on MGM Theater of the Air, and... Perennial movie presence, Jack Benny, in his Radio Prime on the Jell-O program. Plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and a non-Egyptian mummy on Crime Club. And we may have a couple of surprises for you, too, in the next few hours. So what you need to do is settle back, relax, don't give a thought to anything that troubled you last week, and postpone worrying about what might crop up next week. It's time to let all that go. And use your imagination here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. mentioned last week that in the fall of 1960, CBS moved its production of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator to New York. Reportedly, it was a cost-cutting move. The actor playing that character, however, opted not to move with the series. With a young family in Pacific Palisades, Bob Bailey decided to stay in California. The decision ended his sterling run as the man with the action-packed expense account, and the role was taken over by Bob Reddick. Mr. Reddick was only 34 years old at the time, but he was already a seasoned radio veteran, having worked steadily in the medium since his days as a child actor in the 1930s. The most important element in the show's success, though, remained. The scripts were still written by Jack Johnstone, as in this production, the earned income matter from December 4, 1960. It's the debut of Bob Reddick as the title character in the CBS series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Toby Centric, Johnny, over here at Northeast Indemnity. Well, good for you, Toby. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Just that I always have liked the nice big fees that that company of yours hands out on cases. Just happens that I can use one of them right now. I've been running a little short. And I don't get excited, Johnny. Now, what is it this time? Murder? Arson? Embezzlement? Well, it's... Oh, come uh... on, come on, Toby. What is it? Well, as a matter of fact, it's a robbery. Well, fine, fine. If I'm lucky, if I latch onto the loot, whatever it is, I'll collect my usual commission and be loaded again. Uh, Johnny, so tell me all. Now, what's the amount of the loss, huh? Well, that's the trouble. It's only $5,000. 5000 Cash. 
One of his only... Oh, are you kidding me, I hope, huh? Nope. Sorry. That's the full amount. Oh, now look, Toby, that doesn't make sense. Robbery never makes sense. Well, how much of a commission can I possibly pick up on a loss of only five Gs? Johnny... Now, I don't mean to sound money-hungry. No. Of course, I really am. But uh, look at it this way. If I tie myself up with this piddling little case, I might have to pass up something really lucrative. Listen, Johnny, it happened right here in Hartford. And it just happened. And from what little I know about the circumstances, it ought to be a lead pipe cinch for you. Oh, sure, they all are. Yeah, but if you're not tied up with anything else at the moment... Oh, come on. At least take a cab on over here and talk about it, huh? Okay, Toby, just to keep you happy. CBS Radio Network brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To Northeast Indemnity Associates, Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the earned income matter. On only a $5,000 loss, I wouldn't even dare to put in too big an expense account. However, I wasn't kidding. I could use some extra dough. But as long as I didn't have anything else to do, all right, take it on. Item one, $1.20 for a cab into Toby Tetrick's office. At Northeast Indemnity. Well, I guess it was kind of thoughtless of me to have you come right over here, Johnny. I should have sent you straight to Mercy Hospital. Well, I can't imagine why, Toby. I'm feeling fine. Now, come on, Johnny. I'm serious. I want you to go over there and see this client of ours. His name is Philip Standish. Now, what's happened to him? I thought this was a robbery matter. Well, it's this way, Johnny. Standish lives at the Ashley Arms apartment alone. You know the place? Yeah, I know the place. Well, early this morning, while he was still in bed, somebody broke in, bashed him over the head, and walked off with his $5,000. $5,000 in cash lying around his apartment? That's kind of silly, isn't it? Well, he thought he'd had it pretty well concealed, Johnny. Where? On the wardrobe in his bedroom. Now, don't you mean in the wardrobe? No. Right on top of it. Right out in plain sight. Now, look, I've heard about the most obvious place being the least likely place to find something, but isn't that a little ridiculous? Five thousand bucks? No, no. What I mean to say was the urn was in plain sight. The urn? Yeah. You know, one of those heavy bronze cremation, uh, that is, funeral urns, the kind they use to keep somebody's ashes in after that somebody's been cremated. Kept the money in that. I see. Well, that's not such a bad idea, as a matter of fact. If it had a good tight lid on it. And it did, with a tricky kind of lock on it. Who'd ever expect a man to keep money in one of those things? I mean, instead of the ashes of a dear departed relative or something. Well, evidently somebody did. But the question still remains. What question? Why under the sun keep that much cash lying around? Well, what sort of business is he in? Well, what did you say his name is? Yeah, that's right. Philip Standish. Mm -hmm. The way I understand it, he has an interest in some sort of an import business down in New York. Art goods, novelties, furniture from the Orient. And he commutes all the way to New York? Well, only goes down there once or twice a week, I think. Anyhow, Johnny, the man's been beaten and robbed by somebody who got in through the open window of his apartment. He has one of those policies covering cash loss up to 5000 He's over there in a private room at Mercy Hospital, and he wants you on the job. So, if you have nothing else to do... Uh, do the police have any ideas about who may have done this to him, or is he... 
Why don't you run over there and ask him yourself? All right, Toby. Putting the bill. Uh, now go easy on the expense account of yours, will you? For once. After all, it's a pretty small amount of Oh, but who knows, Toby? Pursuit of the missing five grand may lead me to the furthest corners of the earth. Why? The strange, exotic lands where never before has the white man set foot. Oh, where untold dangers lie lurking in the jungle. Oh, oh, go on, you bum. Get out of here before you break my heart. All right, Toby, I'll see you later. Item two, 75 cents for a cab to Mercy Hospital. Philip Standish, a rather good-looking man of about 50, had taken a beating all right. The back of his head was taped up with a heavy bandage. There was a splint on one of his arms. But he was still very much alive. The police? No, Mr. Dollar, I want you to handle this. But why? If you were beaten and robbed, it's a police matter. But what can they do? That is, with no clue whatsoever as to the man who did this to me. The man? All I've been able to tell them is that somebody came into my bedroom through the open window, beat me up this way, then left with the urn containing the money. Then you told them? Yes, of course. Do you expect me to run this man down for you? Yes, I do. You're sure it was a man? Yes, of course I am. Because you recognized him, maybe? Yes, Mr. Dollar. You're sure? Absolutely. But that you didn't tell the police? No. Why not? Because it would only bring out... Bring out of my past something I prefer not to have known. It's something I wouldn't want to publicize. Keep talking, Mr. Standish. Well, now, this must be absolutely confidential, Mr. Dollar. All right. Uh, that, that's the reason I asked to see you. Go on. Well, 15 years ago, I I served a short prison term. Oh, what? Oh, it was a, a ridiculous thing I did. Utterly stupid. But I, I signed another man's name to a check, and, well, I, I paid for it. I see. Now, my cellmate, while I was in prison, was a man by the name of Thomas Slade. A Tommy Slade? What? Well, that kind of rings a bell. Now, what was he in for? Illegal liquor, narcotics, something like that? Wasn't he in the headlines sometime or other for shooting a man? Frankly, Mr. Dollar, I don't remember. He was a tough and dangerous sort, though. I see. And I remember that one day in our cell, we talked, among other things, about about places to hide the, the loot from a job. You plan to resume a career in crime after you get out? Oh, good heavens, no. But uh, that's all the people in a place like that talk about. Crime. Uh, past and possibly future. Go on. Well, anyhow, it was Slade who suggested this funeral urn. A place even an experienced criminal would never think of or want to tamper with. And so, ever since I got out, that's where I've kept whatever money I've had. Friends, uh, people who've seen it, have suspected nothing, have sympathized over my loss of a dear one. And I've encouraged that illusion. Why not keep your money in a bank? Well, that's silly of me, I know, but ever since the foolish thing I did with that check, well... Suppose you were to accumulate a real sizable sum. Well, to be honest about it, there is considerably more than 5000 in that urn. Well, the insurance only covers it to five. Right. Now, I must have it back, Mr. Dollar. And if you can get it for me, I'll pay you far more than your insurance company will. Well, that's an inducement. <laughs> Frankly, I thought it would be. Oh, what's the matter with him? Well, my my head doesn't feel too great. You take it easy. Now, you figure that Tommy Slade is the only one likely to know that that's where you kept your money? Oh, I'm sure of it. I'm also sure that although I've tried to avoid him over the years, he's kept track of my whereabouts. All right, now how to find him. Well, it shouldn't be too difficult. Hmm? He lives in Los Angeles, in West Los Angeles, California. Oh? His address is uh, uh, 1308 Pandora Avenue. Now, I know that section of L.A. pretty well, Mr. Standish. 
You think he'd simply haul that iron back out then? Well, why not? You know that if I were to pursue him or alert the police, it would only give him opportunity to bring up that part of my past that I've tried so hard to live down. Wouldn't he be more likely to simply yank the dough out of the urn and then oh, toss no, it away? No, 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 no. In the first place, it will take him some time and skill to find the clever way in which I've locked in the threaded plug in the top of it. Not even so. And knowing Slade, I'm certain he wouldn't risk giving away the secret of the urn by letting some mechanic or machinist open it up for him. Now, don't forget, Mr. Dollar, that if the police have given this robbery to the papers... Anyone seeing the money in that urn would spot him immediately as a thief. You have a point there. What's more, certainly no one would try to steal a thing like that from him. So he has no worries about the safety of the money. I suppose you're right. But somehow, Mr. Dollar, you must find him. Get that urn away from him and bring it back to me. As I said before, I'll make it very much worth your while. Okay, Mr. Standish, I'll see what I can do. Wish me luck. Expense account item three, another six bits, this time for a cab to police headquarters. There I asked Sergeant Jimmy Wormser if he could somehow get me a flyer on one Tommy Slade. Oh, what's the matter with this one right here on the top of my desk? <laughs> It'll do fine. How come, Sergeant? Well, it came in with a little note from the boys out on the West Coast one day last week. What, he found their wanted list out there? No, no, no. The note just said he was headed this way. On account of his record, the boys in L.A. thought we'd like to keep an eye on him while he's here in Hartford. Oh, did he arrive? Yeah, and we kept an eye on him. But all he did was fool around for a couple of days, and uh, he did pay a visit to the uh, Department of Health. Oh, why? Well, something about a permit to carry somebody's remains back to California. Now, what do you know? And would you say this picture is a good likeness? Yeah, perfect. Good. I'm uh, sorry I can't let you have a dollar, but I think we better keep it here in our files. I can have a photostat made if you like. No, 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 that won't be necessary. But if you've been keeping tabs on him, where will I find him? Oh, well, that's a good question. You like train rides? Train rides? Yeah, that's right. Mr. Tommy Slade bought himself a reservation to New York and a berth on the Starlighter Express to Los Angeles just this morning. And then he's already left town. Oh, not more than a couple of hours ago. But if you grab a plane down to New York... All right, you... thank you very much. Oh, now, wait a minute, Dollar. What's your interest in him? You know something, Sergeant? I'm not absolutely sure. What? Not yet, anyway. The more I thought about that picture of Tommy Slade, the more certain I was that somewhere, sometime, our paths had crossed before. Item four, 6.50 for a fast, and I mean fast, taxi out to Bradley Field. I was lucky. So item five is $8 even for a plane to New York that took off almost immediately. Item six... 570 for a cab into the railroad station. And then item 7, 209.35 train fare. I boarded the Starlight Express only seconds before it began the long journey westward. I left the settling down in my roomette. I suddenly realized that I had no proof at all that the man I was looking for was even aboard this train. However, a $2 tip to a porter, that's item 8, took care of that. Yes, there was a man by the name of Slade on board, also in a roomette. Just one car in front of mine. All right. Now all I had to do was to make sure it was Tommy Slade. That he looked like the picture I'd seen at police headquarters, and more important, that he had the bronze urn with him. At cocktail time, somewhere out in the middle of Ohio, I joined the mob in the club and observation car, but I saw no sign of anybody who even remotely resembled the man in the picture. But then, as I walked into the dining car... 
He don't mind sharing a table with another single gentleman, sir. Not a bit, steward. Fine, I can seat you immediately. Uh, this way, please. Take care of table seven, Waldo. Amos, your table's ready for the check. Uh, do you mind if this other gentleman sits with you, sir? Why should I? Sit down, mister. Make yourself comfortable. Thanks. Uh, here's a menu, sir. Thank you, steward. Now, let's see. My, uh, my name is Slade, Tom Slade. Well, how are you, Mr. Slade? My name is Harry Walker. Walker, huh? That's right. Going all the way to the coast? Yeah. What about you? Well, at the moment, I'm not sure. Are you making it funny? No, not a bit. I just haven't planned that far ahead. Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Me? Not that I know I'm... Why? Oh, I just wondered. Now, let's see what's on that menu. Yeah, you do that. And that ended the conversation. He didn't look up again from his food. When he finished, he got up without a word and returned to his sleeping car. I'd rather hope that he'd go the other way to the club and observation car to give me a chance to look into his brunette. Because this was the Tommy Slade, all right. No question about it. I'd simply have to bide my time and wait for an opportunity to get my hands on the urn. If he had it. And then somehow get off the train with it. Or, of course, if that opportunity didn't materialize, I could only pray for the best and follow him all the way into L.A. Well, after my dinner, I had a couple of brandies in the club car with a pretty little blonde who spoiled everything by having to go back and look after three kids you happen to have on board. And then I wandered out the observation platform. The night was beautiful, unseasonably warm with a full moon that bathed the countryside in its pale, eerie light. This was quiet, peaceful farmland country, the smell of the clean, freshly turned earth had an almost intoxicating effect on me, and I dozed off for a while. How long I slept, I'll never know. Because I was rather rudely awakened by a cloth or coat or something wrapped suddenly about my head, and then a blow on top of it that knocked me out. Oh. All right. Okay, now, buddy. Now you're going over the side. <laughs> flat on my back in a roomette. A completely unfamiliar but kindly old face looking down at me. Well, now, that's better. Much better. Oh. Who are... Who are you? I'm Dr. Springer. I think you're going to be all right now. You just relax and rest. There was no great damage done. Oh, oh I'm afraid your head may hurt you for some time. You have a rather nasty bump there. What happened, Doc? I was hoping you'd be able to tell me that. According to the conductor, as he was making his rounds, he stepped out on the observation platform, and he saw a man leaning over you. The man said something about your apparently having fallen from your chair out there. I hate to think of what might have happened to me if that conductor hadn't come along. What did you do, faint or what? There is a trace of alcohol on your breath. Uh, believe me, that had nothing to do with it. Oh, how? Oh. 
Now, 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 why don't you just lie here until you feel better? And I'll drop by again a little while to make sure you're comfortable. Uh, look, Doctor, does the conductor know who that man was? The man who was leaning over me? Well, I'm afraid he just shouted at the conductor and walked on by him so quickly. Mm, well, I think I know who it was. Thank you, Doctor. How much do I owe you? Not a thing, not a thing, my boy. Now, you just rest. And I'll drop in on you later. Right. Right. So, I rested. For all of five minutes. By the end of that time, I was all fired up to settle accounts with Tommy Slade immediately, once and for all. But as I walked, forward into the next car full of sleeping passengers, I realized I'd better take it easy, use my head, what there was left of it. And then I saw that the door of Slade's roomette was wide open, not even the curtains were drawn across it. It was empty, except there in the corner, the heavy bronze urn. I glanced around to make sure I was alone, and then I slipped in, and I looked it over. The tiny crack between the lid and the body of it had been pried at. But it very obviously hadn't been opened. I was about to pick it up and carry it back to my own roomette. I thought you'd try this, Dollar. Oh? But I'd ask you in here, Tommy, if there was room for both of us. As it is, you'll just move aside. All right, drop that iron unless you want a couple of slugs in you. Oh, I see. You have a silencer on that gun. That's huh? right. Oh, that's good planning. Now, let's see if I can hear it through this door. I'll kill you. Slug must have been the armor-piercing kind. Came all the way through that door and narrowly missed me. That one was too close to the lock. But the plane was slowing down. Now listen, if you think it's easy to break through two layers of a Pullman car window, well, it isn't. As for climbing out through the jagged glass loaded with that hunk of bronze, but somehow, I made it. Item nine is $184 transportation. That means a few miles by car, a train to Pittsburgh, PA, a plane to New York, another to Hartford, and finally a cab to my apartment. Well, after cleaning up and changing my clothes, I got in my car and I drove to Mercy Hospital, the urn wrapped up in my top coat. Item ten, there in the lobby, a dime for a phone call to police headquarters. And then I went up to Standish's room. Mr. Dollar! Oh, is that it, Mr. Dollar? Wrapped up in that coat? That's it, Mr. Good, good. I told you I'd pay you well for its return, and believe me, I will. I think you'll pay all right. What? You see, this urn and I had a little accident on the way back here. Accident? Sort of a train accident. I mean, when we left that Pullman car, one of the wheels almost cut the urn in two. But it didn't, uh... Uh, but the, uh, the the money didn't fall out? Not the money or anything else. Oh. The cap flew off and it jarred loose the top of the false bottom that you have on it. Too bad, huh? I'm, uh, I'm afraid I, I don't understand you. I'm afraid you do, Standish. No, no, Just really, lie I... there quietly in that bed. Now, you said there was a lot more than just 5,000 in the urn, didn't you? Now, Dolly, Made a living it? in Oriental imports, huh? Well, that is the understatement of the week. You made a fortune is more like it in one of the foulest, filthiest rackets in the world. Now, look, Just you stay there, Standish. You're still a sick man, remember? Remember, huh? 
You said you couldn't remember what Tommy Slade went up for. Well, I remembered. And that's how I knew that you had turned to his caper when you got out. I, what I happened? Were you, you holding out on him? Is that why you had to come all the way in from the coast to get the urn away from you? Will you listen to me, please? It's no wonder that you didn't dare go after him yourself. He knew you. He would have spotted you. would have killed you. As who wouldn't for a kilo of the stuff in the false bottom of the urn? Two pounds of it. Pure, uncut. And wholesale, maybe eight or ten thousand dollars worth. But carefully cut to individual fixes, you'd probably get a million, maybe even more than that, for this much heroin. Yes, heroin, you dirty, rotten, filthy son of... All right, Sergeant, take over. Interesting sidelight on the case. I saw in the afternoon papers that the railroad company didn't look too kindly on Tommy Slade's little act. I mean when he was caught standing there blasting away at the lock on the door of his roulettes. Come to think of it, I'd better tip the federal boys to his having gone back to his old racket. Expense account total, $418.15. And no padding on this one. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zarato Jr., musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in our cast were Ralph Camargo as Philip Standish, Ralph Bell as Tom Slade, William Mason as Toby Tetrick, Jack Grimes as the police sergeant, Bill Smith as the doctor, and Sam Raskin was the steward. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hanna speaking. Reddick, in his first appearance as yours truly, Johnny Dollar, the earned income matter broadcast in the first week of December in 1960. We'll continue with Mr. Reddick in the role and also hear from some of the other actors who played Johnny over the years, including Bob Bailey, in the coming months here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The most famous feud in the history of American comedy started on the radio at the very end of 1936. That was when Fred Allen presented a 10-year-old violinist, Stuart Kanan, playing The Bee by Franz Schubert. And he noted obliquely that the kid was a better violinist than Jack Benny. Mr. Benny retorted on his show, and the fake squabble was on. Mr. Allen made fun of Jack Benny's persona's cheapness, vanity, and receding hairline, and Mr. Benny ridiculed Fred Allen's nasal voice and less-than-matinee-idle features, including the bags under his eyes. Audiences went crazy for the jokes, and the ratings soared for Mr. Allen's Wednesday night show and Mr. Benny's on Sundays. We're going to hear one of Jack Benny's shows from early in the staged feud, which went on for years. His cast included his wife, Mary Livingston, the band leader, Phil Harris, the portly announcer, Don Wilson, and, in that pre-Dennis Day era, the singer, Kenny Baker. There's a reference to two actors, the handsome Robert Taylor and the child star, Jackie Cooper. 
Peter Lind Hayes impersonates Fred Allen. And listen for a public service announcement at the end of the show about the devastating 1937 Ohio River flood that claimed almost 400 lives and displaced more than a million people from West Virginia all the way down to Cairo, Illinois. From January 31st, 1937 and NBC, it's The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny. The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris and his orchestra. <laughs> and now we bring you our radiant master of ceremonies with warmth in his heart and a cold in his head, Jack Benny. Hello again. This is Jack Benny speaking to you through a Kleenex. <laughs> so don't get too close to your radios, folks. You know you know how these colds spread. Uh, where did you get that cold, Jack? Uh, down at the racetrack. You know, I went out to uh, Santa Anita yesterday. Oh, why didn't you wear an overcoat? I did, Don. I wore one on the way out. The bookmaker wore it home. Oh, <laughs> usually do, don't they? <laughs> I tell you one thing, Don. I'm through with horses. That fourth race yesterday cured me. Oh, that's all what happened? Well, Don, I didn't mind when my horse stopped in the middle of the race and quit cold. But when he came over to the rail and asked me if I heard Fred Allen Wednesday night, <laughs> that was going a little too far. <laughs> How can a horse run during the day when he's up all night listening to the radio? Well... <laughs> You know, Jack, even they have to have a little fun. Uh, say, Don, <laughs> do you think Alan could have bribed those people to say I couldn't play the B? Why, Jack, I thought you told me this morning that you were going to forget all about him. Oh, yes. Uh, just slip by the... Well, anyway, I <laughs> swore I'd... <clears throat> I'd never bet on another horse as long as I live. Unless it's a sure thing, you know. Hiya, Don. Mm. Hello, sucker. <laughs> Listen, Mary, you didn't do so well at the track yourself yesterday. I didn't, eh? No. I came home with three winners and a jockey. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Anyway, I only had bad luck in one race. Yeah, what happened? What happened? The jockey forgot his smudge pot and my horse was frozen at the post. <laughs> no, Mary, why do you make those things up? Good practice in case I ever get on a comedy program. Yeah. Something funny about this. Well, that's my ambition, too. <laughs> my ambition, yeah. Hiya, fellas. Hello, Jack. Hello, Fred. I mean, Kenny. <laughs> oh, Jack, why don't you get Alan off your mind? He's not on my mind, just because I happen to say Fred. There are a lot of Freds. There's Fred McMurray, Fred Astaire, Fred Stone. There are millions of Freds, aren't they, Kenny? Yeah, but Alan's the funniest. <laughs> Is that so? Huh? Say, who was that J.B. he was kidding about last Wednesday night? J.B., probably George Burns. You know, he spells by ear. <laughs> Anyway, I don't want to talk about him. Let's forget F.A. That's short for fake, and that's what he is. <laughs> Let him top that one. <laughs> don't worry, he will. Oh, yeah? Well, let's forget it. What's that paper you got there, Kenny? I don't know. I found it at the racetrack. Let's see it. Oh, it's a dope sheet. A what? A sheet dope. <laughs> oh, you can say it either way. Yeah. <laughs> You have a good time at the track, Kenny? I'll say. They got better hot dogs there than at Ocean Park. Oh, so you, you just go there to eat, huh? You said it. 
I saw him with a hot dog so big, I put $2 on it to show. I just put mustard on it. Oh, you did, huh? Come in. <laughs> Special delivery for Mary Livingston. <laughs> there she is. The way he's laughing, it must be from my mother. Hey, that's good. We could stand a few laughs. Well, you can go, boy. What? I say you can go. What are you standing there grinning at me for? <laughs> so you're the guy that can't play the V. <laughs> Get out of here. Wise guy. If I didn't have this cold, I'd go right after him. Between Allen and horses and colds and... and uh, uh, play, Phil. Give me an aspirin, Mary. Will you? I had at your house last Sunday night and how much I enjoyed meeting your mother and your sister, Lucy Bell. Say, she's a knockout. Uh, well, she thinks a lot of you, too, Jack. Uh, does she really? Certainly does. She's been talking about you all week long. Gee, no kidding, Bill. Yes, sir. As far as she's concerned, you're the top. Gosh. <laughs> well, I've been... Uh... Come in. That's your pulse. Oh, <laughs> Well, well, it's good to know I'm alive, you know. Yeah. And that... And that reminds me, Kenny, you embarrassed me terribly at Phil's party, always hungry. Well, I didn't serve anything. Well, that's no excuse. And another thing, you can't eat goldfish. You can't, eh? No. Wait till they look in the bowl. Kenny. <laughs> Say, Phil, is Lucy Bell coming up to the broadcast tonight? You knew she was. No, I didn't, really. Yeah? What have you got that new suit on for? This isn't a new suit. And take off the tag. 
Hey, that's got to last tonight, didn't it? I bet I, I bet I could think of an answer if I didn't have this cold. Jack, I'm not a doctor, but uh, you know what I think would be good for you? What? Why don't you take some Jello, dissolve it in warm water, stir thoroughly, and then after it cools, add some sliced bananas and have it with your dinner tonight. Oh, will that cure my cold? I don't know, but it's a swell dessert. Well, I'll, I'll try it for the sake of my job or my cold. <laughs> Why, Mary, what are you laughing at? This letter from Mama is a riot. Well, if it's that good, let's hear it. See, your mother's letters are always funny. Go ahead, read it. All right. Mm. Uh, Plainfield NJ, Jan 29, TH-37. What is that, a code? No, I'm all right. Oh. Go ahead. Uh, Dear daughter Mary, received your letter, and I was sure glad to hear from you. We have been having very unusual weather in Plainfield, too. Hmm, that'd be pretty cold there. Uh, your brother Hillard had a touch of the flu, but he is now up and around. Hmm. This morning he got up and chased his nurse around the room. I wonder who won there. Uh, your sister Rita's having trouble with her eyes again, and keeps running into things all the time. Hmm. So I guess we'll either have to get her new glasses or bumpers. <laughs> now that's... That's silly. Uh, tell Jack I know it, but I got a laugh. A fine letter. Go on. Huh? Uh, last night, there was a lot of excitement at the Palace Theater. We went to see Camille. In the middle of the picture, Camille took sick and died, so we got our money back. Oh. Uh, it sure happened quick. She was in perfect health when we sat down. Well, that's, that's life for you. Yeah. Uh, no more news at present, except your father is very busy making out his income tax. Hmm. He cheats at solitaire, too. Nice about your father. Uh, tell Jack we're all quite interested in his fight with Fred Allen. And speaking of the bees, will you please send me a check for $25? Uh, love from us all, your mater. Hmm, Mater, she's getting quite high class there. Oh, here's a P.S. Oh. Uh, please ask Kenny to sing Sweetheart, Let's Grow Old Together and wish him the best of luck, as I know I'm tough to follow. <laughs> well, that's mighty sweet of the Mater. Uh, think you can follow her, Kenny? Oh, sure. What's a Mater, Jack? Well, Mater is a Latin word meaning an ancestor on the maternal side. Do you get it? Yeah. <laughs> What are you laughing at, Kenny? That's not a joke. I don't care. I'm not fussy. <laughs> Go ahead and sing. Gee, I wish Lucy Bell would get here.
Sweetheart, Let's Grow Old Together, sung by young Kenny Baker. They say, Phil, um, Phil, did uh, Lucy Bell get here yet? Not yet, Jack, but she ought to be here any minute. I wish she'd hurry up. You said she, uh, you said she mentioned my name, didn't you? Yes, she did. What'd she say? Well, she said if you'd have sent her flowers, it'd have been much nicer than the one she got from Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah? You keep out of this, Kenny. I didn't say anything. Well... Anyway, when Lucy Bell gets here, I want everybody to behave themselves. Especially Kenny and Mary. And Don. I'll be all right. Yeah, I bet that's her now. Gee, do I... Do I look all right, Mary? Not to me. Come in. Mr. Benny? Yes? I want to take this opportunity of wishing you and... I wish... I wish somebody had set a trap for him. Oh, Derek, Luke is coming to the studio. Well, well. Here comes Lucy Bell now. <laughs> well, well. Hello, Lucy Bell. Hello. Oh, my God, take a piece to see you again, Mr. Danny. Oh, Lucy Bell, why would you call me Jack? After all, I'm your brother's friend, and... Yours, too, I trust. You mean that? Yeah. You're not itching, are you? <laughs> Only like a fool. Mary. <laughs> oh, there's Mr. Baker. Thanks for those poinsettias you sent me, Mr. Baker. Chuck, I ordered flowers. <laughs> like, Kenny, what do you think poinsettias are? A couple of dogs? Yeah, with spots on them. <laughs> That's right. Uh, tell me, Lucy Bell, uh, you've been in town a week now. What, what have you been doing with yourself? Well, I met a nice young man, lives next door. Mm-hmm. And he took me off to Hollywood Bowl by the night. The Hollywood Bowl? Why, there, there are no concerts there this time of year. <laughs> we didn't mind. <laughs> I mean, have you have you done anything interesting? Oh, that was very... I mean, have you seen any of the sights around town? Don't raise your hearts to me, sir. Oh, uh... Sorry, Lucy Bell. Now listen, Jack. Either respect my sister or take up my option. <laughs> oh, there's my brother. Hello, Filthy Lamb. <laughs> Filthy Lamb. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Stinky Pie? <laughs> That's your fault, Mary, for telling you my nickname. Yeah. Well, I tell him your real name. Why? 
You know, you still have a big crowd in this studio. Is that the audience? No, that's Don Wilson. The audience is over here. <laughs> Although he's an audience enough for anybody. Eh? You know, Don is our sponsorial mouthpiece. He is? What's that? Well, that's, uh, Lucy Bell, that's... Oh, you explain it, will you, Don? I'll be glad to. I knew you would. A sponsorial mouthpiece, Lucy Bell, is a fellow who says the Jell-O is the finest, tastiest dessert in the world, and it has that new extra-rich fresh fruit flavor, and every day millions of people eat it. Oh, that. Yes, Lucy Bell. That's Don's whole life giving sponsorial hints to the world. Well, Lucy Bell, if you'll wait around till the program is over... <coughs> We can go out somewhere and have a sandwich, you and I, or a dance or two. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack, but the boy next door is waiting downstairs to take his foot drive. Well, some other time then, huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, bye, everybody. Bye, bye little girl. Come again. Bye, Jack. Goodbye, Lucy Bell. Have a nice time. <laughs> we will. <laughs> hmm. The boy, the boy next door. Say, Phil, who lives next door to you anyway? Well, Robert Taylor lives on one side and uh, Jackie Cooper on the other. Oh, Jackie Cooper? Oh, he's just a kid. I don't have to worry about him. Tonight, I would like to settle once and for all an argument that has been the talk of the musical world. It seems that... Say, uh, Jack. Yeah? Uh, what about that special Fourth of July sketch you announced last Sunday? Well, Don, I'm not in a Fourth of July mood tonight, and, but there will be some fireworks. I've got something very important on my mind that I'd like to discuss with Phil Harris, so if the rest of you fellas want to go home, it's all right with me. Okay, as long as you don't need us. So long, Jack. So long. You can go too, Mary. All right. Come on, Kenny. Let him try to get laughs now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in the mood for laughs. 
So long, Jack. Goodbye. And there are other things in life besides comedy. What's on your mind, Jack? Uh, come here a minute, Phil. Phil, uh, how many men have you got in your orchestra? Fifteen. Fifteen, huh? Well, next Sunday, I'd like to have you add about 30 more. A real symphonic organization. But what's the idea, Jack? Well, Phil, there's one argument I didn't start that I'm going to finish next week. I'm going to play Schubert's immortal classic, The Bee. <laughs> Thank you, music lovers. <laughs> but, Jack, uh, do you think you can do it? Oh, Phil, here's the music. You can see for yourself it's a simple composition. I don't know. There's a lot of notes there. Well, those aren't all notes. <laughs> anyway, should have screen doors here. Anyway, you can go now, Phil. I, I just wanted to get everything set. Okay. Yeah. Well, Phil, I'm, you know, I'm kind of tired anyway, really. I don't feel like working much more tonight. And, I'm, you know, I haven't been feeling any too good. I'll, I think I'll, I think I'll lie down here for a minute or two, huh? That's a good idea, Jack. That cold has got you down. Yeah. So long, Phil. So long. Uh, see, this couch feels pretty good right now. That. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I ever got through today. <laughs> Excuse me, folks. You know, I, I haven't been so sleepy since last Wednesday night between the hours of 9 and 10. <laughs> You know, folks, you know, life, life's a funny thing. It's, I don't know, it's the, it's the little things that upset you. You take a, take a fellow like Alan, who, who, yes, sir, life sure is funny. Yep. Yep. I'll have a big symphony orchestra and I'll show that guy up. <sighs> B, B, nothing but B. The busy B. To be or not to be. J, B, J, B. F, A. F, A, F, A. Well, as I live and breathe and stuff a doll in my mouth so I won't laugh at his jokes, if it isn't Jack Benny. Fred Allen. Allen, what are you doing here? So you're going to play the B. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, I am. And when I get through with the B, it'll be number one on the hit parade. Hit parade? Why, you couldn't even get into the parade of the wooden soldiers and you got a head start. Oh, no? Now, listen to me, Allen. Last Wednesday night, you brought three kids up to your program, known as the Three Smart Girls, didn't you? Yes. And what did you ask them? I asked them why they call themselves the Three Smart Girls. Yes, and what did they say? We said we never listened to Jack Benny. <laughs> now, listen, Alan. Listen to me. You've dragged my name through musical mud long enough. Well, what are you going to do about it? See this gun? 
If you've ever prayed, pray now. Oh, what's the use? You'll play the fiddle anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the last quip you'll ever make. Take this. Wait, wait a minute. Don't you? Don't you? <laughs> I thought you were a coward, you spineless yellow jellyfish. Yellow? Why, you're yellower than a canary bird with a jaundice. <laughs> that's the last straw. Now, before I bump you off, Alan, I just want you to remind you of a few things. You said I couldn't play the bee at the age of ten, didn't you? You brought the postmaster from Waukegan up to testify against me, didn't you? You brought the photographer. You brought my violin teacher. You brought our family pawnbroker. Why, for two more bucks, you could have gotten my father. <laughs> you accused me of picking up old cigar butts. You said I'd never live to be 104 and a half. You made me the laughing stock of the nation. And Europe, I swore to you. You laughed. You lied. You ridiculed. You slandered. And you called me a squirt. Well, the squirt is turned. You reached the end of your rope, Alan. <laughs> Take that. And that. And that. <laughs> Jack. Jack, what's the matter with you? Wake up. Wake up, Jack. What's wrong? <laughs> oh. Oh, nothing, fellas. Nothing. I I just had a dream. And gee, it was swell. <laughs> Play, Phil. program in the new Jello series, and we'll be with you again next Sunday night at the same time. Oh, Jack. Yes, Don? A uh, telegram just came in. Do you mind if I read it? No, no. Who's it from, Don? Well, it's from Alton Cook, radio editor of the New York World Telegram. Oh. It says, uh, congratulations to Jack Benny on the new honors he has won in the World Telegram radio editor's poll. Stop. For the fourth consecutive year, he has been voted America's favorite comedian by the radio editors of the United States and Canada. Stop. The Jell-O program was picked as the all-around favorite show for the third successive year, and uh, Don Wilson was voted the best studio announcer. Stop. Well, Congratulations also to Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, and Kenny Baker, who have maintained their same high standard. Signed, Alton Cook. Well, thanks, Alton, and all of you fellow radio scribes for this great honor. I also want to thank my listeners, my cast, and my authors. Hey, wasn't that swell, Mary? Uh, come on, let's go. <laughs> All right, my dream man. <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> At this time, the entire country is shocked by one of the most unparalleled catastrophes in recent years. The victims of the floods need not only your sympathy, they also need your help. Give. Give as much as you can afford to help relieve the intense suffering in the flood areas. Send your contributions to your nearest Red Cross chapter and be as generous as you can. Thank you. The part of Fred Allen was played tonight by Lynn Hayes. The Jell-O program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston came to you from Hollywood. This is the Red Network of the National Broadcasting Company. The Jell-O program starring Jack Benny from the winter of 1937 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, whether you know it or not, today, April 11th, is International Louie Louie Day. That's right. One of the last big American hits before the British conquered Top 40 Radio at the end of 1963 
and, I'm going to say it, one of the worst hit records of all time, the Kingsman's smash recording of a 1957 song by rhythm and blues man Richard Berry. Louie Louie became a cultural phenomenon, aided more than a little bit by rumors that the unintelligible lyric was obscene. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy ordered the FBI to investigate, and after more than two years, the agency admitted they couldn't make heads or tails of it. For reasons I absolutely can't recall, I own a copy of the Kingsman's live Louie Louie album, and shamefacedly, I'll post a link to the front and back covers on our Facebook page. What I can remember is dancing my feet off to the record at a conclave of the Ohio Valley Federation of Temple Youth in Louisville, Kentucky. Try not to visualize that as you listen to the recording made by the Kingsman in Portland, Oregon on April 6, 1963 for Wand Records of Richard Berry's Louie Louie.
Adventure. Adventure, intrigue, mystery, romance, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Together in the sultry setting of tropical Havana and the mysterious islands of the Caribbean. Bold Venture. Once again, the magic names of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall bring you Bold Venture and a tale of mystery and intrigue. Sailor, stand still a minute. I want you to slip into this. You flipped, kiddo. Oh, now look, baby, three days now, no tourist has set heel, toe, or nose in Shannon's place. Least you can do is cooperate in drumming up a little trade. Come on, try it on. It'll make you a walking dream. You can get down on your hands and knees and touch your pointed head to my open-toed sneakers. I'm not getting into that thing. Oh, come on. At least let me hold it up to you for size. Ah, sure, a creation. Adjust the shoulder straps, saw off a little here, plane this area down a bit, chop off a little here. Shannon, just put your tired little skull between these What's two... What's the matter, sailor? You got a thing against sandwich signs? What kind of a neurotic are you? It's just that I ain't tasty between two slabs of plywood. <laughs> Baby, you slip into this. Grab a fistful of our handbills, work the plaza for an hour, you'll have them standing in line. Oh, that's cute, cute. Keep him behind a wooden barrier, son. That way the fillies never get away from you. Ain't that right, cutie pie? Look, mister, you want a room? Just ask for a room. Let's not feed no sugar to no fillies, huh? <laughs> you got yourself a ball of fire, mister. Just dribble her against that board for a while. She'll shape up. It's like the lady said, mister. You want a room, ask for it. Cheap philosophy brings the rates up. Well, no offense, mister. That's just me. Kindly. That's why I'm looking for a slate Shannon, because... I'm on a kindly errand. Rest your weary frame, friend. You found him. I'm Slate Shannon. You the same Shannon owns a boat? Yeah, the Bold Venture. She's lying at the pier with a sick carburetor. It's real kind of you to ask. Well, that's me, you know, kindly. You wouldn't be the Slate Shannon that's a friend of a fellow with a scar by the name of Rudy Keyjohn, would you? Rudy? Yeah. Why, Rudy was the greatest swashbuckler of them all, after me, of course. Why, five years ago in New Orleans, I left Rudy swashing and buckling away fit You to... sure that you were with him in New Orleans five years ago? Sure, I'm sure. One of the fondest memories of my life. Well, that makes you Slate Shannon, all right. Makes you something else, too. A killer. Honey, sugar bun, whoever told you this man was Slate Shannon? Five years ago, they found Rudy Keyjohn on the waterfront dead of a knife wound. New Orleans police been looking for the man he was with the night he died, and I just found him. Me, Bob Yancey. You crazy, mister? When I left Rudy, he had his arm around a New Orleans paper doll. Stick your nose to my badge, Slate Shannon. Also, this gun, it's known as a police positive. Then come quietly. You're under arrest for the murder of Rudy Keyjohn. <laughs>
Yancey's not back yet, huh? Hungry, Rudy? Well, answer me, honey. I'm a girl and attention should be paid. I brought food. I asked you if you no. were... Oh, where's the manners, honey? Offer from me to you one Havana hamburger sandwich. I'll hold and you can nibble. Linda. Mm-hmm? Untie me, Linda. Get me out of this place. Has he gone to slate Shannon, Linda? Mm-hmm. A little while ago. Get me out of here. Untie me. Go on, Linda. Untie me. I can't do this thing to Slate Shannon. To an old friend. You've already done it, baby. Now we know all about Shannon we need to know. And we needed to know it. Thank you, Rudy Keechon. And you'll use this knowledge to do what to Shannon? Oh, don't worry your tousled head, honey. You ought to eat something, Rudy. Eating's nourishment and you're going to need it. Get out, Shannon. What for? This is nowhere, Yancey. It's Havana waterfront at eventide, fabled in story and song. Out. Over here. I'm good to you. Look how nice you can see Havana's waterfront. Now, I do this because I've got a feeling that you're going to miss it. Hey, you got something on your mind, Yancey? Yeah. Yeah, I have, Shannon. I'm noted for things I have on my mind. What's today's burden, Yancey? Well, once I read the encyclopedia, it made me fluttery. You know, that, that section under J. That part about Fitsui Jade from Burma goes like this. Uh, new paragraph. Quote, Fitsui Jade is the rarest and most valuable jade known. Unquote. Now, isn't that nicely worded? You a cop, Yancey? Pay attention, Shannon, you know... I could forget there's a murder rap crawling all over you. Look over there. That boat, that's a beauty, huh? Oh, you mean that catch? Uh-huh, yeah, that's the catch moon spray out of Rangoon. I was there when she left. The skipper was pointed out to me just before he weighed anchor. The skipper's name is Pedro Velez. Pedro Velez? Friend of yours? You a cop, Yancey? Take a look, Shannon. What does that make me? Anything I want to be? Right. Not a cop, huh? Well, I got a cop's badge. Stole it from a dear friend of mine who's a cop. Pedro Velez, Shannon. Skipper of a catch out of Rangoon, hauling a small sea chest of feet suey jade. That's the burden, huh? The current one, yeah. I need to get aboard that catch, Shannon. You can arrange it. You know Pedro Velez. Listen to this, Slade. It's the safety catch of a gun. Sounds just like that because that's what it was. Let's get going, Shannon. We've got a thing to do. Sighing over the scrapbooks of Mr. Slate isn't going to free him of a murder charge, Lady Sailor. I just can't believe it, King. Slate's no killer. The kind of man Mr. Slate is, Lady Sailor, the kind of life he's led, who knows what might have happened to him back in the shadows of his years. You think he could have killed a man? Do you want an answer, Lady Sailor, to make you feel better, or do you want an answer? Just an answer, King. Yes, I think Mr. Slate could have killed a man. I have been at his side for many years. He's a good man. He is also a man of violence. 
I don't care what you say. I know Slate, too. He couldn't murder. Believe what you want, Lady Sailor. You love him very much, don't you? Go get me a drum to beat on, King. I've just got me a cause. I've got to be shown how Slate is a killer. It is not that I do not admire, indeed relish, the fluid beauty of your walking back and forth in front of me in my office, Senorita Dual. If it is uh, not that you do not admire, Inspector LaSalle, then don't knock it, huh? Enjoy, enjoy. We have placed the Transocean Call to New Orleans Police Department, for which I will be most happy to present you the toll charges. Just give me a number how many more laps I've got to go before they call back. A girl has to pace herself in these things. So you and I have waited half a day together. I will enjoy waiting till nightfall with you. Till the end of time. Uh, this is not too long to wait for the information whether Slate Shannon is indeed a murderer, whether he did indeed kill a man, Rudy Kijon, in New Orleans, whether uh, you are not pacing anymore, Senorita Doval. At least make it interesting for me, huh? It bores you, huh? That a man arrests Slate for murder, takes him away. Knowing Slate Shannon as I do, Senorita Doval, it was only a matter of time until... Uh, Inspector LaSalle, Havana Police. New Orleans, senorita. You timed it well. Eh? See, si, I accept. No? See? Si. No. You are certain? No, I'm not disappointed. It will happen sometime. Gracias. Operator, get me the charges, please, for the call to New Orleans. What'd they say, LaSalle? Tell me what they said. Never in New Orleans has there been the whisper of a murder of a man, Rudy K. John. If he is killed, says in New Orleans, he was killed in another place. And the man who arrested Slate was a fake, a phony, a guy with a mission. Mm, aye, thank you, operator. $19.12, senorita, plus tax. It's cheap to buy back an innocent man, no, senorita? To see you, amigo. I am sorry the crew is sure we would make music. <laughs> and how happy I am to see your friend. I wouldn't rush it, Pedro, my friend. Well, I shake his hand. Friend of Slay Shannon, I offer you my hand. My hand's shaking apparatus is occupied at the moment, Pedro. It's in my pocket. It's holding a gun. You say gone? Yeah, that's right. Stolen from the army. Yeah, that's what I meant, Pedro. My friend steals police buzzers, army guns, jade. Uh, this is a joke, see? I should tilt my mouth like so to make a grin like so, see? I should do it. It's this way, Pedro. Gancy here's had that gun in my back for the last hour, but now, see? Let's get him. You want a shot in the shoulder too, Shannon? You want to just say so. Let the air in the shoulder a little. You know I could do that. Okay, you shot him. Now what? He'll live. That door over there goes below, Shannon. Walk ahead of me. Open it. You're a real large guy, Buster, with a gun in your hand. What happens to you when you get forgetful when suddenly you wake up in the morning and nothing's in your fist? I get cowardly. Open that closet. 
Everything out on the floor, Shannon. Nah, nothing. Come on, that chest of drawers. Come on, come on, open it. Spill it. Yeah, the other one. Come on. Spill it. Oh, oh, now that tin box looks possible, doesn't it? Now, doesn't it, Shannon? Come on, open it. All right, all right. Put it on the table, Shannon. Now it'll open, Shannon. Come on, do it. Oh, oh, you scoundrel, you Shannon. Look what you just did for me. <laughs> Jade. Fitsui Jade. Now, couldn't that just kill you? Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and the second act of our story. Oh, listen, my children, and you shall hear, and spare kind stranger one salty tear. Hear a story about a man named Slate. A man jilted by a lady named Fate. A man come in, police badge he show. Say, Shannon, you're a killer and away we'll go. I hate to tell you, I hate to say. You murdered a friend in Louisiana, eh? And the man was lying, King. He was no more a cop than you or I. But he showed you a badge, didn't he, Lady Sailor? Who looks at badges? Could have said chicken inspector for all I know. King. Yes, Lady Sailor. Are you worried, King? Oh, Mr. Slate has been in desperate situations before, Lady Sailor. Why, I have seen him when he faced danger armed only with a smile so chilling that his enemies turned and fled screaming into the night by the hordes. I have seen him dirty howling monsoons, taunt the burning desert with... You worried, King? Yes, Lady Sailor. Me too. I've checked every place of exit in Havana. Bus, airplane, boat. No Slate. No phony cop named Yancey. King. Yes, Lady Sailor. Don't play. It sounds like... like a dirge. Lady Sailor. Mm-hmm. Mr. Slade will be all right. Yeah, him and his chilly smile. I need him like a... I need him, King. Find him. Bring him back to me. Got your feet, Sui Jade, Yancey. Your gun poked a hole in my good friend, Pedro Velez. You've had a long day playing cops and robbers. Something eating on you, Shannon? Yeah. 
My feet hurt. Oh, you're delicate, huh? The tour's almost over, Shannon. Inside. Ah, it's a nice place you got here, Yancey. Complete with redhead. About uh, size 12, weight 114. Am I correct, miss? And you know that without trailing a finger down my arm, huh? Get rid of boy with purloined gun here, baby, and we'll have it your way. Now, don't it ever nauseate you how you keep trying, Shannon? That's Shannon, huh? I heard about you, Shannon. Yeah, I just can't keep it quiet. Come on, I'll show you who I heard from. Come on, boy. Rudy, look what Yancey man brought you. Slate. Slate Shannon. Rudy, you're alive. Oh, you're jealous, huh, Shannon? But he can't move a muscle, so don't be jealous. <clears throat> Just let Shannon lie there, Linda, so we can go away and live happy ever after. Service! Hey, service! Just sign the register, Miss. Say. What did you do with Slate? Mm-hmm. You owe me a nickel, Linda. I told you that would be the first word she said. Did you hear her? Yeah, I heard. I owe you five. Uh-huh. What did you do with him, Yancey? Oh, my, she's witty, isn't she? And nice-looking, too. Now, wouldn't you say so, Linda? If I were a man, if it were a foggy night in Havana. What did you do with Slate? Yeah, 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 I know. With Slate Shannon. Well, he's well, and he's happy, and he sends his fondest regards. He's eating nicely, he's gaining weight, and he says not to worry. Slate Shannon is fine. He's just fine. He's cramped a little, but he's fine. All right. You came to make a deal. Slate Shannon for what? Hmm, witty and clever, too. Well, I told you, Linda, she's something, huh? Just nothing. Oh, don't look hurt, Mr. Val, but you might as well know. I think you're nothing at all. Except you have got a boat. And that's the deal. Slate Shannon for the boat. Well, almost. You see, we need a lift over to Miami. We've got a package to deliver. You let us off the boat in the States, and we give you an address, a room number, and a key. And that's where Slate will be? Oh, such a brain. A regular whiz for catching on. Uh-huh, yes. Yeah, Slate will be there. That a deal, Miss Duval? Hmm. Sure, it's a deal. <laughs> You hurt bad, Slate? Uh, come on, Slate. Come on. Rudy? Hey, I've, I've been talking to you for the last hour trying to get through to you, Slate. Uh, you've got to get up. you got to get up and get out of here. I got this nice, soft floor to enjoy, and a, a guy like you has to louse it up. Slate, I, I told you I apologize. I apologized. Uh. Yeah, I forgive you for being alive, Rudy. There was a happy rumor afloat that you were dead. <laughs> Yancey told you this. Is that correct? Yeah, he added a flourish. He said, I killed you. When this floor starts getting hard again, I, I might get around to it. Oh, this is madness. Everybody knows you wouldn't kill me. Me, Rudy Kijan, your old shipmate. Yeah, that was the one time I... Took the wrong boat. Come on, Shannon. Real strong man. Be brave. Get up. Oh, oh that's good, Shannon. It's good. That's very good. Now, now untie me and 
I'll be your crutch. Before this wonderful thing happens to me, Buster, brief me what you're doing here. Eh, it's because I talk too much. Because I unzipped my mouth in Trinidad. So you unzipped. What came out? The brave, crazy days I had with Slate Shannon. I told of them to Yancey and that beautiful Linda. And I told them also of another intimate friend. Pedro Velez? Of course, Pedro Velez. How rich and fat he was becoming on the Burma run. How he brought Fitsui Jade out of the archipelago. Uh, you're a real bright boy to blab that around. Oh, now, please, Slate, untie me. Yeah, I will, because Pedro Velez has got an apology coming, too. For what you did to him. For what you made me do. Well, I'll sing it to Pedro if he likes. Tell him I'm getting back his jade. Tell him I'll bandage the wounds I let him take. Tell him that. Come on, come on. Look, is my fault if the motor doesn't start? You got the look of a grease monkey, monkey. How come you can't start this tub? Run that gun up and down her spine, Yancey. Then maybe she'll remember. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just thought of something. Shannon says something about a sick carburetor. Real sick, huh? See? Huh? Oh, what a clever grease monkey. Now I'll get Yancey and me in this package to Miami. Hold it, I'll cast off. Okay, Skipper, honey, you're okay now. Yeah, she is. Shannon, you... you... Take off, sailor, I've got this guy. Late. Hi, hi. Hey, welcome ashore, Yancey. You, you like to mess things up, don't you, boys? Yeah. Messy, huh? Yeah. Uh, you grabbed me in my my cowardly face, Shannon. I didn't have my gun. But I got it now. You and this gun met before, didn't you? Yeah. You and your gun. Without a tin box full of jade. You'll get it back for me, boy. Go on, run up a distress flag or... Whatever it is you salts do to bring home a boat. It's a black night, Yancey. Sailor won't see it. Well, I got a better idea, Shannon. I'll let this gun talk to you a little bit. Then you'll scream. And that girl of yours will come back. You ever catch my bob and weave, Yancey? On a black night, it's terrific. And I've got a duck that'll surprise you. You want to try? You want to start screaming? You got one shot, Yancey. Make it good. me. I lied to him, sailor. What are you talking about? Yancey got two shots. The first one missed me. The second one I rerouted. Yancey stopped it. Ah, where's Linda? What do you want to know for? And the bucket of jade she had with her that belongs to a friend of mine. Where is it? Are you worried about the jade or are you worried about Linda? Come on, come on. The jade's over by the wheel slate. And Linda, come over here, slate. There she is. That's Linda? Raw hamburger on those eyes, Slate. Now go down. Ice cube on the lips. 
and pivot teeth you can get from any friendly credit dentist. <laughs> well, let's get rid of these people, sailor. Then we can go home. Our stars, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, will return in just a moment. convinced you, huh, sailor? Uh-huh. You really did. I don't ever fight me on these things. You want business, you've got to advertise. Okay, okay. I'm convinced the sandwich board is just the thing. Looks nice, doesn't it? I like the sign you printed on it, too. Fetching. Yeah, I, I dreamed it up all by myself. Shannon's place. When nature has a rendezvous. Turn it around, sailor. Voo with you. It's tweaking, Slate. It really is. Only how about the people who see the backside first? All they're going to see is voo with you. Well, in the advertising game, we call that a tease. You ready, sailor? All right, if you say so. Up. Yeah, now over. That's it. Fit all right? Pretty heavy, isn't it? <laughs> Beefing already. I tell you, it's okay. When you walk, Slate, do it on tippy-toe. You shouldn't drag it on the pavement. Ah, oh, you look fine. Come here. Mmm, yummy. A slate burger. Get out of here, slate, before I gnaw right through the wood. And so, our two stars, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, have brought to a close our latest Bold Venture story. Special music was composed and conducted by David Rose. May we invite you to listen again next week at this time for another exciting adventure starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall together in Bold Venture. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in a story called With Friends Like These from their series Bold Venture in 1952 and... From the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. The Crime Club was a really big deal. In fact, you may well have been a part of it. It was an imprint of the publisher Doubleday that began in 1928 and lasted until 1991. In those 63 years, nearly 2,500 titles were published in the series, by a wide variety of authors, including Patricia Highsmith, Isaac Asimov, Cornell Woolrich, and Ruth Rendell. The idea was that the Crime Club jury would pick a novel a week, or sometimes just one a month. You could have it sent to you or pick it up at your local bookstore. All of Sax Romer's Fu Manchu novels and Leslie Charteris's The Saint series came under the Crime Club brand, with high-grade paper, strong bindings, and cover art by such artists as Andy Warhol, Boris Artsibyshev, and Vera Bach. It was high-quality escapist fare, and it spawned movies, two radio series, and inevitably, imitators. 
The radio shows that survive are from the second series, the one that aired on the Mutual Network in 1946 and 47. We're going to hear an episode written by Stedman Coles, who wrote a lot of Crime Club episodes, as well as scripts for Hollywood and other radio shows, including Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons. This story's called Murder Makes a Mummy, and it comes from May 29, 1947, and the series Crime Club. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the Crime Club. I'm the librarian. Murder Makes a Mummy? Yes, we have that story for you. Come right over. Ah, you're here. Good. Take the easy chair by the window. Comfortable? The manuscript is on this shelf. Here it is. Murder makes a mummy. The very absorbing story of a corpse that wouldn't be bound by the rules. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. There are some people in this world who just can't be satisfied. One of them was Barney Crawford, son of Chief of Police Crawford. For most young men, that would have been enough. But not Barney. Oh, no. Barney wanted to be an Egyptologist, too. It was early one afternoon, and Barney was feeling very much at home in the Egyptian room of the local museum. He was having a wonderful time, explaining the wonders of a dead civilization to Janice Turner, his fiancée, who, at the moment, was sorry the civilization was not only dead, but buried as well. Great, mysterious Egypt. Cradle of civilization. What accomplishments. The pyramids, mummification... The Sphinx. Oh, it's such a beautiful day. I'll bet there are some people who are really enjoying it. Look, here in this case is the scarab. To you and me, an ordinary beetle. But to the ancient Egyptians, a god who is... It's pretty. Of course. It's solid gold with emerald eyes. Now, that would make a lovely pin on my new dress. Yeah. Let's go on, Janice. There's something in that case over there I want you to see. I'll probably never get over it. Yes, sir. One of the marvels of all time. The mummy. How do you do? Let's read what it says on the card. If you must. This mummy is unknown, but is believed to be the remains of Ra Marduk, the son of Shishak, pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty. My goodness. As expensive as that. 22nd dynasty. Janice, don't you realize that's almost 3,000 years ago? Barney, I'm sure the ancient Egyptians were a great people. Great. They were tremendous. But I never knew they wore rubber heels in those days. Why, they had inventions that... Huh? What did you say? I said, I never knew the Egyptians wore rubber heels. Well, of course they didn't. Whoever said they did. Don't argue with me. I'm just looking at the feet of this mummy, where some of the wrappings have come off. Holy mackerel. That is a rubber heel. Come on, Janice, we better send for my father. This might be a murder. Well, 
And that's the whole story, Dad. We were all right until Janice noticed the wrappings that had come loose. And they're as big as life, Chief Crawford, with a black shoe with a rubber heel staring me in the face. Well, we'll soon find out who it belongs to. Now, here comes Sergeant Bailey. Uh, Chief, the coroner's all through with a step. Good. Now we can go to work. He says the fellow was killed by a knife in the back. Uh-huh. Where's the knife? Well, there's no sign of it, sir. Not yet. Did you find any identification on the body? Not a thing, Chief. But the killer left all the labels in the dead man's clothes. Okay, run them down. Yes, sir. I can save you a lot of time, Dad. Well, sure you can, Bart. Now, why don't you and Janice go someplace pleasant, huh? That's a wonderful idea. We'll do something about it right no, now. No, wait, Janice. Dad, I think I can identify the dead man. What? Yes. He was Carter Baldwin, an excavation engineer. I've seen his picture in the papers in connection with Egyptian expeditions. What do you mean, Egyptian expeditions? He used to dig into the tombs of the ancient pharaohs. What a way to make a living. Oh, Chief. What's the matter, Bailey? There's something I forgot to tell you. The coroner said this guy's body was embalmed. Embalmed? Oh, what? That means the murderer must have embalming facilities. Well, thanks for the tips, son. I could never have figured that out for myself. Good heavens, I didn't think it was true, but... Uh, now, what do you want? I'm John Lawrence, the curator of the Egyptian section. My assistant told me the police were here and that the body of a murdered man was... It was, Mr. Lawrence, in this mummy case. But that's impossible. There was a mummy in this case when I received it this morning. This morning, eh? About six hours ago. I, I, I can't understand it. Where did it come from? From Robert Prentice, the millionaire jeweler. He's one of our most generous benefactors. More than half the exhibits in this room were donated by him. I see. Well... Dad, Dad would you mind if I ask Mr. Lawrence a question? You? Now, now, see here, Barney, this is police work. Why don't you and Janice... Mr. Lawrence, my... did you examine this supposed mummy when it was delivered to you? Why, uh, no, but I can explain... Yet you allowed it to be put here for the public to look at. I'm sorry, it was against the rules of the museum. But, gentlemen, I have so many duties, and this morning I was unusually busy. With what? We're setting up a new filing system in my office. Please understand, Chief. Mr. Robert Pentis has given us thousands of dollars worth of Egyptian relics. If it had been anyone else... That's been... no excuse, Lawrence. This is the first time, positively the first time, I've allowed anything like this to happen. B believe me... Yeah. Bailey, yes, sir. you and the boys stay here till you hear from me. Get this building a throw going over. Okay, Chief. Where are we going, Dad? Robert Prentice's house. What do you mean, we? Well, this is a subject I know something about, and I thought if you ran into something that was over your head, I might be able to... All right, all right, let's go. Oh, Chief Crawford. Yes, Janice, I suppose you want to trail along, too. Well... well sure, why not? You found a corpse. Come on, come on. We'll, we'll make this a family affair. <laughs> Now, wait a minute, Mr. Prentice. Relax for a How minute. can I, Chief Crawford? Think of my position. A reputable businessman, a figure in the community. All I want to know is why... I donated that mummy to the museum, and now you say it's been replaced with the body of a murdered man. What do people think? I can't worry about that now. Where did you get that mummy? I bought it from Professor Morton, an Egyptologist. Where did he get it? He brought it back from Egypt several weeks ago. Professor Morton, eh? Barney, did you ever hear of him? Well, I don't recall offhand, Dad. Neither do I, Chief. I can assure all of you, Professor Morton is a scientist in good standing. I've had many dealings with him in the past. I don't doubt it. But about this mummy, what proof have you got that you bought him? I'll show it to you. It's right here at my desk. A bill of sale signed by Professor Morton. Would you like to see it? I think so. One sarcophagus. Period 1,000 to 900 B.C. Dad, is that all it says? That's all, Barney. Nothing about Ramar Duke, son of Shishak? 
Rahu, son of what? Oh, I guess in the excitement of the museum, Johnson, I forgot to tell you. You see, there was a card. Naturally, Mr. Crawford. Since Professor Morton had no positive proof that the mummy was that of Ra Marduk, we couldn't put that statement on the bill of sale. Well, then, actually, you don't know what you bought, do you, Mr. Prentice? Frankly, I didn't take the wrappings off to look. And for all you know, it might have been the body of a murdered man. Now, see here, Chief Robert. Are we carrying this a bit too far? How well did you know Carter Baldwin? I didn't know him at all. I've heard of him, but I never met him. Why don't you ask Professor Morton about him? He might be able to give you some vital information. Such as? I couldn't say. But Morton and Baldwin went out on several expeditions. It was a close professional relationship. The kind that might lead to murder? One never knows what will lead to murder. Yes. But Professor Morton never impressed me as a man of violent moods. We'll see. All right, Mr. Prentice, I'm sorry we bothered you. No trouble at all. Anything I can do to help. We'll let you know. Come on, kids, we're going for another ride. Let's hope this thing doesn't turn out to be a merry-go-round. Professor Morton? Yes? I'm Chief of Police Crawford. Chief of... Oh, have I done something wrong? That's what we're here to find out. And, uh... These people? My son, Barney Crawford. How do you do, sir? And I'm Janice Turner. I'm so glad to meet you. Come in, please. Now then. Oh, Barney, look at this place. It's like a museum. Thank you, Miss Turner. Everything you see here is an authentic relic of old Egypt. Oh, but forgive me. I have no right to call them relics. They are living things. This vase, for example, once adorned the palace of Cheops, Pharaoh of the Fourth Dynasty, one of the builders of the Great Pyramids. It's beautiful. And this solid bronze bench. Oh, when you two get through with your tour of inspection, I'd like to ask you a few questions, Professor, if you won't mind. Oh, oh, yes. I'm very sorry. Uh, what can I do for you? Tell me about the mummy you sold to Robert Prentice, the jeweler. A fine specimen. And Mr. Prentice is a fine gentleman. Why didn't you want to certify the mummy belonged to Ra Marduk? Ra Marduk? Uh, who was he? Well, he was a... Yeah, you tell him, Barney. Well, Ra Marduk was the son of Shishak, pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty. Oh, yes, I know Shishak intimately. But Ra Marduk... Now, see here, Morton. You told Prentice the mummy might be Ra Marduk's. Did I? Professor Morton, did you or did you not sell a sarcophagus to Robert Prentice a few weeks ago? Of course, it was my latest acquisition. With a body of Carter Baldwin in it? Carter Baldwin? Oh, now, don't tell me you don't remember him either. Mm, I wasn't going to, Chief. Uh, Carter and I were... Uh, were what? Well, we were uh, associates. And you didn't like him, did you? He was the worldly type. Not very likable. You don't kill people for that, Professor. Was he murdered? Yes, he was. Oh, Barney. Chief. What is it, Janice? Look what I found. The most wonderful collection of daggers. Uh, daggers, did you say? Where? On this table. Look at them. As sharp as razors. Well. I'm really proud of this collection, Chief. It's the rarest in the world why some of these daggers have been traced back. Save the, the lecture, Morton. I'm taking them all down to headquarters. Oh, but you can't. They're priceless. They're replaceable. We'll take good care of them. Oh, dear, this modern world. Why must you take them away? Well, one of them might have bloodstains on it that don't go back 3,000 years. Let's go, kids. Oh, my. Stick close to the house, Professor. We might need you later. I won't go away, but I don't understand why... 
Lucky Crawford. You don't think that sweet old man is a murderer, do you? Maybe. Oh, just because he had those daggers in his house. Good heavens. Dad, haven't we overlooked something? Uh, what now, Barney? The mummy. Now, what about it? Carter Baldwin was found in a mummy case. Now, where's the mummy that was in that case when Robert Prentice gave it to the museum? Where? Yes. How do we know Morton didn't substitute the body of Carter Baldwin for the mummy before he sold it to Robert Prentice? Barney, I don't believe it. What do you think, Dad? You mean Prentice gave it to the museum without knowing what was in it? That's right. Yeah. On the other hand, how do we know the switch wasn't made by John Lawrence, the curator? That's what I say. Lawrence was in the best position to do it. And if you ask me... Yeah, Lawrence was the last stop on the line for that sarcophagus. Why didn't he check it before he put it in a room for public exhibits? He didn't have to. He knew what was under those wrappings. Uh Uh-huh. I'm going back to the museum for a talk with that curator. Dad, would you mind if Janice and I didn't go... Uh Oh, that would be a pleasure, Barney. You uh, call me at headquarters later. I'll uh, give you a first-hand report. Now, Barney Crawford... Janice, I wonder if Morton might have an extra mummy lying around. Shall we go back and ask him? No, dear. We'll go forward towards the back of the house and look for a cellar door. Barney, if you need another hairpin. No, thanks. This'll do. I still think we're going about this the wrong way. Patient, Janice. I'll have this door open in a minute. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, instead of looking for a mummy, we should be looking for a motive. I told you that comes later. Hmm, but a motive, dear, usually points to a murderer. Oh, a dozen people can have motives. Ah, here goes the lock. Not open this door without making too much noise. So far, so good. Let's get down those steps. Now, you go first. I'll close the door after me. Oh, where are you? It's pitch black in here. Wait a minute. I'll get my cigarette lighter. How's that? It gives light, but very little comfort. Here, take my arm. We've got a lot of exploring to do. Ooh, this is the eeriest cellar I've ever seen. Just walls and corridors. Pretty queer for a private house. Well, we've got no right to expect anything else. Professor Morton is an Egyptologist. There's an open door, Janice. Let's see what's in that room. But that doesn't make him a murderer. Why, that sweet old man must cry every time he accidentally steps on a bug. Oh! Barney! What's the matter? Look. Those animals all over the room. Oh, those. (laughs) They won't bite you. They're only bronze figures. There's some cats. There's a bull. Over there on the shelf, some falcons. That bull's the fiercest-looking thing I ever saw. And in this light... Barney, what's the idea of the menagerie? Well, the ancient Egyptians worshipped these animals as gods. They must be priceless. I wish they were somewhere else. Ah, ah, ah. Here's what I'm looking for. What? All those mummy cases. One of them might contain... Wait a minute. Barney, why did it blow out the light? Shh, listen. Someone's closed the door. We're locked in. Must have been the professor. Hey, let us out. Bang on the door. I am. Bang on the door. Bang on the door, Barney. I don't hear you doing that. I am. Yes. Oh, I'm afraid it's useless. What do you mean? Well, the door's made of solid stone. Here, wait till I light my lighter again. Yeah. And look at the walls. All stone. Just like the inside of an ancient Egyptian tomb. I'm thrilled. What are we going to do? I don't know. 
It looks like I've outsmarted the two of us. But good. Barney, how much longer are you going to open and close mummy cases? This is the last one, Janice. Well, no mummy. Thank heavens. All I need now is a mummy to cheer me up. You know, your father should have arrested that... That Professor Morton. Oh, have you changed your mind about him? Barney, what do you think he'll do with us? I don't know. After we're dead, do you think he'll embalm us and sell us to the museum as mummies? What a thought. Did you say embalm? Yes, but I'd rather forget it. That's it, Janice. If Morton killed Carter Baldwin and wrapped up his body as a mummy, then he must have embalmed him. And if he did... Don't tell me you're going to start hunting for the embalming apparatus. Uh-huh. Oh, Barney, not Janice, now. Janice, I'm sure it'll be around I here. want to get out of here. Barney, if we don't find a way out, then I promise you I'll go out of my mind. Oh, please, dear. Take it How easy. How can we... I with all these animals surrounding me? They're only bronze figures, darling. And that bull standing there in the middle of the floor and staring at me. Just staring at me. I'd like to poke my fingers into his eyes. Oh, look, honey, please. Will and you listen? I will. What? What was that? I don't know. I'm afraid to look. Janice, you darling... You touched the spring in the bull's eye, and, and the wall opened. Does that mean we're free? It means something. Let's see. Oh, Barney, it's not an outside room. No, it just leads to another room. And there's another bull standing on a platform. That, darling, happens to be a cow. Well, I don't care. And if my guess is right, it's Hathor, the ancient Egyptian cow goddess. This is no time to get technical. Well, I was only trying to explain, Jack. Explain us out of here. Is this room a solid vault, too? Yeah. Seems to be. And it's outfitted like an ancient sacrificial chamber. Sacrificial? Oh, Barney. Janice, come on. What are you going to do? Walk us through a solid wall? I'm going to poke my fingers into the cow's eyes. Maybe the same magic will work twice. Oh, sure. Just like in the movies. <gasps> Barney. It's open. Well, let's not stop to admire the scenery. Oh, I never thought a hole in the wall would be so beautiful. Say, there's a flight of steps. Yes, up to the professor's living quarters. Dear professor, how I'd love to wrap him up. All right, but take it easy. We may have to take him by surprise. Nothing would give me greater pleasure. Yes. And I hope we scare the pyramids out of him. We'll have to be very careful now. You think he might have a gun? Maybe. Is he there? I don't see him. Let's not get frisky. He might be in one of the other rooms. Oh. What's that? Only the telephone. Let's get outside, Janice. The professor should be coming in here to answer. Hmm. Nobody home. Unless he's got an extension upstairs. Come on. I'm going to pick up the receiver and listen. Nobody on the line. Professor's out. He's run away. Yes. Well, I better call Dad at headquarters and tell him about it. And while you're giving him an earful, tell him how that sweet old man locked us in an airtight vault and left us to suffocate. I'll give him a full report. Hello? Police headquarters? Chief Crawford, please. This is his son. Oh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll try him there. Thank you. Goodbye. Well? Dad's still at the museum. Then that's where we're going. 
I want to hear tell him about Morton right away before that murderer has a chance to go too far. <laughs> Hey, Bailey. Bailey! Yes, sir? What are you standing around for? I told you to turn this place upside down to get every man working. Oh, Dad! Well, what do you want, Barney? I tried to get you a head. He got away. John Lawrence got away. Slipped right through my fingers. Where do we tell you what we've been Not now, Janice, please. What about Lawrence, Dad? Well, we got here right after closing time. That curator was not in his office, so we decided to look here in the Egyptian room. And, of course, you... Yeah, there he was with his nose stuck halfway into one of those mummy cases. He took one look at me, dropped the lid, ran out of the room on the other side. We haven't been able to find him since. What about the missing mummy, Dad? That, too. We've searched this building from roof to cellar. Every mummy case that's supposed to be empty, every closet, the boiler room, we... Now we even checked the furnace. But no mummy. I see. Bailey! Get headquarters on the phone. Tell them to send out a nationwide alarm. I'll get this guy, Lawrence, if it's the last thing I do. Ooh, your pop's really in a huff. But we should have told him about Morton anyway. Come on, Janice, we've got things to do. What kind? It's 9 o'clock and the public library closes at 10. We'll have to hurry. What are we going to do with the public library? What are we going to do? Some reading, of course. Barney, will you stop being mysterious? Now, why did you drag me all the way here... And to the section with the dustiest books. Ah, here it is. What? A history of the pharaohs. Oh, no. Now, what's that got to do with the murder of Carter Baldwin, a 20th century excavation engineer? Shishak. Shishak. Will you stop the baby talk and answer my question? Shishak. Pharaoh of the 22nd Dynasty, the father of Ramar Duke. Remember? No, dear. I wasn't there when it happened. Ah, here it is, page 90. And it would have been a wonderful thing for all of us if Morton hadn't been there either. Shishak. Hmm. Shishak. Ramar Duke. Oh, what names to hand down from father to son. Boy, how those people must have hated each other. Janice, we've been chasing all over town for nothing. Hmm? Shishak never had a son by the name of Ramar Duke. Someone pulled a fast one on the museum by sticking a phony label on the mummy Robert Prentice donated. Professor Morton. Janice... You are absolutely the cleverest girl I've ever known. No, he tells me. Remember how you argued with me about looking for a motive instead of a mummy? I'll never forget it. Why, you were right. That's what we should have done from the start. Come on. Wonderful. Where are we rushing to now? To the home of Carter Baldwin, the murdered man. I'd like to poke into his private papers, if they're still around. Barney, what goes? Now, thanks, Janice. I've gone through every paper on this desk. Mm, Baldwin may have had other hiding places. Why don't we turn on the room lights? Well, the cigarette lighter will have to do. We're less apt to be seen from the outside. Mm, yes, darling. But suppose the well runs dry. Oh, then we'll... Mm, what's this? Discover it? This book on the table. The Great Jewel Robbery. Barney, you're not going to read it now. No, dear. I did that once before, some time ago. It's very interesting, and I think it solves our case. Barney, you sure you're all right? I'm perfect. This book tells me all I want to know about the murderer and his motive. I knew it. Too much Egyptology. Listen, I'll tell you the story. It's about a band of thieves that became very rich, plundering the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of those tombs are studded with emeralds, rubies, and other precious stones worth millions. Go on. I'm beginning to see what you mean. Well, legally, those stones belong to the Egyptian government. 
And excavators are duty-bound to turn them over to the authorities. But this gang smuggled the stones out of the country. Yes. Then, posing as Egyptologists, they transported the mummies and other contents of the tombs that either sold them or donated them to museums. Was Carter Baldwin mixed up in that kind of well, a he might have been. He was an excavation engineer, and he and Professor Morton... Barney. What's the matter? Kill that light there, someone at the front door. Let's get behind the sofa. Stand as you are. What? Don't turn around. And don't turn off that flashlight or we'll shoot. I see here. Put your hands over your head. That's a good boy. Keep him covered, boys. I'm going to frisk him. Yeah, just as I thought. A gun. All right, Janice, you can put the room lights on. Janice? Just keep facing that wall. I'll tell you when to turn around. Now. Why, it's Robert Prentice. Surprised, honey? Well, aren't you? Not anymore. Well, Prentice? I have nothing to say to you, Mr. Crawford. Oh, come on now. Let's not be coy. What did you expect to find in Carter Baldwin's wall safe? I said I have nothing whatever Evidence, to... wasn't it? Evidence that you and Baldwin were robbing the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs. Don't be ridiculous. It's quite a racket, wasn't it? Baldwin explored and plundered, and you, Prentice, the fashionable jeweler, sold the precious stones to innocent purchasers. Why did you kill him? You accusing me of murder? Why not? It's the truth, isn't it? I should say it isn't, young man, and if you want more careful of what you say to now me, I'll... Now, look here, Prentice. It's the end of the line. Would you like me to tell you what mistakes you made? Mistakes? Number one. Showing my father that bill of sale for a sarcophagus. I bought it. A legal transaction. Number two. Telling the museum the mummy might have been that of Ramar Duke, son of Shishak. Professor Morton gave me that information. Without putting it on the bill of sale? I didn't want his assumptions. I wanted facts. And he gave them to you. But he said nothing about Ramar Duke because he knew that Shishak had no son by that name. Then he lied to me. I bought that mummy in good faith. You're so eager to find a murderer that I suggest... There's still a third mistake. You told my father that you'd never met Carter Baldwin. Now, who told you about his wall safe? His ghost? That does it, doesn't it? I knew we'd get you eventually. It was just a matter of time. Well, Janice, Prentice just made a full confession to Dad. Is it worth listening to, Barney? Well, that depends on if you care. Baldwin was going to cut Prentice out of the racket, so Prentice killed him. And had him embalmed. Who did that, Barney? An undertaker's assistant. The fellow's answering a lot of Dad's questions right now. But, Barney, why did Morton lock us in that vault? Well, he didn't know we were there. He went out of the house and simply closed the door to his storeroom, and we just happened to be in it, that's all. And it would have been that's all for both of us. If I hadn't made a bullseye... Or if I hadn't made a cow's eye. I'm going to ignore that, Barney. (laughs) But what about... Uh, John Lawrence, the curator. Well, I knew he was innocent the minute Dad told me what Lawrence was doing in the Egyptian room. He was looking into a mummy case, wasn't he? Yes. And obviously, he was looking for the missing mummy. Now, if he'd been the murderer... He'd have known where he'd hidden the mummy, of course. No, 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 dear. He'd have known there'd never been a mummy. What? Now, look here, Barney Crawford. Prentice showed us a bill of sale for a sarcophagus, didn't he? I know all about that, but what I don't know... Well, a sarcophagus is a mummy case and nothing more there had been a mummy in it, the bill of sale would have said so. Oh, oh! so that's why you rushed to the library to find out about Ra Marduk. Ra who? Ra Marduk. I haven't got the slightest idea who you're talking about. Barney. Well, that's better. I know him. The other guy never existed. He was never even born. And so closes tonight's story, Murder Makes a Mummy. 
Stedman Coles wrote the radio script. Jock McGregor produced and directed for Roger Bauer. Tonight's cast included Lawson Zerby as Barney Crawford, Jane Harvin as Janice Turner, Al Hodge was Chief Crawford, Lon Clark was Robert Prentice, and Ted Osborne played Professor Morton. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes, come over a week from tonight. Good. We have the very exciting story of a vacancy that was filled by death. It's called Murder Rents a Room by Sarah Elizabeth Mason. In the meantime... Well, in the meantime, there is a new Crime Club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we look for you next week. Murder Makes a Mummy. You just gotta love that title. From the series Crime Club in the spring of 1947 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. I don't know about you, but I find it tempting to blame everything bad on the pandemic. One casualty Jill and I are pretty sure is due to COVID-19 is an interview that she was arranging with one of the stalwarts of old-time radio and the golden age of Hollywood movies, Marsha Hunt, still very much with us at age 103. We're redoubling our efforts at getting to speak with her on the air, so keep your fingers crossed and... To whet your appetite, here's a sparkling performance by Ms. Hunt in a radio adaptation of one of her hit films, the 1946 romance set during World War II, A Letter for Evie, co-starring Hume Cronin. The two were reunited four years later in this broadcast, part of a series hosted by the playwright and lyricist Arthur Schwartz, the MGM Theater of the Air. The famous film studio was using radio to promote its brand and to build enthusiasm for some of the movies in its catalog, including A Letter for Evie, which for some reason they retitled for radio A Letter to Evie. With references to the conductor Arturo Toscanini, the movie version of Wuthering Heights, and the beautiful Jerome Kern Oscar Hammerstein ballad All the Things You Are, it's Marsha Hunt and Hume Cronin in a production of a Letter to Evie, from August 4th, 1950, and the syndicated series, The MGM Theater of the Air. The MGM Theater of the Air. Our stars this week, Hume Cronin and Marsha Hunt. your host, vice president of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and distinguished writer of many of your favorite hits of Broadway and Hollywood, Mr. Howard Dietz. Our radio stage this week has a martial air, a faint echo of the military, but a pleasant echo as the play is on the lighter side. The motion picture is well-remembered. 
And the radio adaptation will, we hope, entertain you with the story of a boy and a girl in a pre-atomic world. When the phrase of the day was, don't you know there's a war on? But you must admit, I mean, it was certainly an unusual way to go about meeting a man. With ten million men in uniform and out of circulation, unusual ways are the only ways that work. After all, war or no war, a girl's got to think of the future. The man in uniform in our play is Hume Cronin. The young lady thinking of the future, Marsha Hunt. Both of them played in the motion picture, you'll remember. The title of this MGM Theater of the Air presentation, A Letter to Evie. its inception in the front office of a shirt manufacturing company in Brooklyn. Plant manager DeWitt Pynchon sits behind his desk. Private secretary Evie O'Connor stands nearby. A factory employee faces them, definitely on the carpet. Now then, Miss, uh, uh, Miss... She's Miss Jenkins, Mr. Pynchon. Mabel Jenkins. We have a business here. A shirt manufacturing business, and there's a war on, Miss Jenkins. Oh, don't I know it. Hush. We have a contract with the United States Army that specifies 600,000 shirts, sizes 13 to 18, sleeve lengths 28 to 37. However, Miss... uh, uh, Jenkins, Mr. Pinchon. Mabel Jenkins. However, there is no mention in our contract of personal letters inserted by our employees into the shirt pockets... Intended for the presumed recipients of said shirts. What did he say, Miss O'Connor? Just listen and take it. I have here a letter written by you and put into the pocket of one of our shirts. Read it, please. Have I got it? Please. <clears throat> Dear big soldier, I know you must be big to be able to wear a size 16 and a half shirt pre-shrunk. I have always liked big men, especially when they're brave and serving their country. I'll be waiting for your answer, big soldier, at 7.20. That will do. Well, Miss Jenkins? It does sound a little corny, don't it? Can you imagine Miss O'Connor here writing such a letter? Mr. Pynchon, please. To tell the truth, no. I'm due in J.B.'s office. Uh, Miss O'Connor, will you try to make clear to this girl what I've been trying to get across? Look, I've been Mr. Pynchon's private secretary for four years. He's only thinking of your own good. It's for my own good to get me a man. (laughs) Miss Jenkins, ten million of them are out of circulation, and I'm making post-war plans. But Mr. Pynchon says... Oh, Pinchy. He's my idea of a tired turtle. (laughs) Indeed. That will be all, Miss Jenkins. Say, wait a minute. You're not... You and Pinchy aren't... I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Mr. Pynchon is my employer, and I respect him as such. Oh. Oh, no. Men aren't that scarce. (laughs) Pinchy! (laughs) Can you imagine romancing with that? Miss Jenkins... I'll bet it'd be like kissing a a nice, fresh halibut. (laughs) (laughs) Tell your boss next time I'll try not to get caught. 
writing a letter and putting it in a shirt pocket. Of all the ridiculous, childish, romantic... What does she say? Dear Big Soldier, I know you must be big to be able to wear a size 16 and a half shirt pre-shrunk. The idea. I'll be waiting for your answer. J.B. wants this Army Directive dated 10.25 a.m. instead of 10.15 a.m., Evie. Now, uh, where's that telegram? Did what? Yes, Evie? Kiss me. What? Please. Here? Now? You wanted to last night. Oh, Evie. (laughs) Hmm. (sighs) Darling, Evie, you will marry me, won't you? Won't you? I've waited so long, so patiently, so... Why are you looking at me like that? I was thinking of... of halibut. (laughs) Thinking of... of what? Pinchon! Yes, dear. I mean, yes, J.B. Where's that telegram? Coming, coming. Uh, You better wipe off that lipstick to it. Oh, my. Yes, yeah. Uh, Send that shirt model back to the styling department, will you? Halibut. Dear big soldier, I know you must be big. Well, why not? What's there to lose? Make up your mind, Edie O'Connor. Either it's settled for DeWitt or... Dear soldier, did you see the movie Wuthering Heights? Sometimes I feel just like Kathy, the heroine. I lead a very conventional life, but sometimes I... Sometimes I'd like to do all the wild, impulsive things Kathy did. Got your requisition? Right here. One shirt, 14 and a half. Next. Got your requisition? Nothing else. One shirt, 16 and a half. Next. Got your requisition? Hey, soldier, wait up. You calling me? Yeah, we're bunkmates, I think, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I recognize you in line. Didn't get a chance to talk to you this morning. I'm Edgar Larson, Milwaukee. My pals call me Wolf. Uh, I'm Johnny McPherson, Buffington, Connecticut. What's your line, Johnny? Before the war, I mean. I'm a dandrologist. What's yours? Best cigar salesman in Wisconsin till the army got me. What's a dendrologist? Tree surgeon. My father's in the lumber business. Lumber, wood, wood, trees. That's very interesting, really. Hey, I got a pass for the afternoon. You two? Sure. Well, let's do the town together. Pick up a couple of tomatoes. Tomatoes? Yeah, you know, lollipops, mice, pigeons. Oh, girls. You got it, pal. Hey, give us a cigarette, will you? Sure. I got matches here somewhere. Hey, hold the shirt for me, will you? Hey, something fell out of your pocket. What do you know? Looks like a letter. Huh. Here's a letter. Must have come with a shirt. <laughs> it's from some day. They just won't let me alone. <laughs> oh, get a load of this. Dear soldier, did you see the movie Wuthering Heights? I did. That was my favorite movie. Sometimes I feel just like Kathy the heroine. I lead a very conventional life. Uh-oh, that's all, brother. Wait a minute. You're, you're not, you're not going to throw it away. Here and now, pal. i got more mail than I can answer. But she sounds like a nice girl. Nice and lonesome. Kind's dangerous. They got in mind marriage, period. Besides, I didn't like Wuthering Heights. It's too deep. Well, come on, let's go. Hmm? Uh, what? 
Well, we're going to do the town. Well, uh, well, what about another time, Wolf? Um, I've got to go down to the library this afternoon. The library? you got to pass for the rest of the day and you're going to the library? They're holding a book for me. <laughs> okay, ruin your eyes. See you later, kid. Uh, yeah. Uh, see you later. Now, his letter. Anybody might have got it. Dear soldier. Anybody who wears a size 16 and a half shirt. Sometimes I'd like to do all the wild, impulsive things that Kathy did. Like writing this letter, for instance. I've made up the kind of person you are, soldier. Tall and strong. You must be to wear this shirt. I can see you striding through the night against the wind and the rain. Excuse me. Perhaps you can't picture your hero catching a cold, Miss... Uh... Miss... I know you're big spiritually, too, soldier. A man who has time and capacity to see the beauty in life. How do I know that? Well, because I'm romantic enough to believe in fate. In kismet. Kismet? If you do, too, please write to Eve O'Connor. Well, why not? Kismet. <laughs> business, Evie, but as your roommate, I've got a right to say it. I think you're being awful dumb. Barney, please. And as your best friend, I've got a duty to say it. You could do worse than DeWitt Pynchon. He's crazy about you. I know. Well, what are you waiting for? Why don't you marry him? Well, he... he kissed me the other day, and... oh, I don't know. Nothing happened. I didn't hear music. Music? You want your love scenes with backgrounds by Toscanini? Oh, you know what I mean, and... And besides, there's, there's something else. Something or someone? Well, I, I've started corresponding with a soldier. An army soldier? Mm -hmm. You, Evie? I put a letter in the pocket of one of the company's shirts. You, Evie? Oh, Barney, please stop saying you, Evie. It makes me sound like, like... Well, anyhow, listen to the answer. It came today. Dear Eve O'Connor... Oh, his name's Johnny McPherson. He's in Texas. Here, read it yourself. I certainly will. Dear Eve O'Connor, the shirt... It was a size 16 and a half, Barney. Do tell. The shirt fits fine. Just uh, a little tight across the chest. <laughs> but to receive so beautiful a letter, I'd even squeeze into a size 16. Do tell. Your letter took me back to my lumberjacking days in the great Northwest. The Indians used to call me... What's this? Umpum Warish Taspum. Oh, let me see. Oh, umpum warish taspum. He tells what it means in the next line. The large one who walks alone. <laughs> all my life, all my life I've been driven forward in search of something. I feel from your letter you're searching too. Aren't we all, brother? <laughs> what? Oh, nothing, dear, just reacting. Perhaps in our letters we can search together. I have a sad feeling that kismet will never arrange for us to meet. But maybe it's better so. Please write soon again to Johnny McPherson. Well, what do you think? He sounds dreamy. I'm sending him my picture, Barney. I'm not stunned with amazement. Evie, are you going to tell Pinchy about this? 
Why should I? There's nothing wrong with writing to a boy in the service, especially one as far away as Texas. Well, there's nothing wrong at all if he stays in Texas. What do you mean? Well, you know, Evie, kismet. You never can tell. You just never can tell. Courtney, Larson, Johnson... Machovsky? Yeah. Larson. Hey, Wolf, don't those dames of yours know there's a paper shortage? Don't blame them, Sergeant. They're in love. Give me the thing. Hamilton, Maloney, Larson, Bressler, McPherson. McPherson. Here. Oh, thanks, Sarge. You're welcome. Jennings, Peters, Jones. Hey, Johnny, get a load of this. I want to tell you how grateful I am to you, Wolf Larson. No girl's education is complete until she's known at least one cad. I've met you. <laughs> My education is finished. Johnny, you're not listening. Hmm? Hey, your boy's got mail from a dame. Well, I... And a picture in it, too. Come on, give us a look. Well, well, it's of my great-aunt, Wolf. An old lady? Um, on my father's side. She just celebrated her 75th birthday. That's swell. Give her my love. Uh, Wolf. Yeah? Would you do me a small favor? Depends, Johnny boy. What is it? Well, I've written to my family about you. How we're bunkmates and pals, sort of. And mm-hmm. they want to know what you look like. Naturally. Yes. Well, I take a swell picture. That's the favor. Could I take your picture to send to my family? I could borrow the sergeant's camera. Oh, kids, you won't have to. I got millions of pictures of the old wolf. You have? Sure, yeah. Whenever one of my dolls gets a little temperamental, I send her a picture. Makes her happy again. And a happy dame is always a quiet dame. You're going to have your choice, John. Well, I'll appreciate it, Wolf. Oh, it's nothing at all. Got an assortment of poses in boxing trunks, football gear, lifeguard, a couple in lumberjacks outfits. Lumberjack? That'd be perfect. Were you in the North Woods, Wolf? No, I had the picture taken in Mitchell Park, Milwaukee. Well, come on, I'll get it for you now, and you can put it in the mail tonight. I want to thank you for your picture, Eve. It's as lovely as I know you are. I'm enclosing one of me taken when I was working in the great North Woods. Uh, You know... As I'm writing this, the Recreation Hall Radio is playing my favorite piece. All the things you are. It's my favorite because it reminds me of you, Evie. It's funny it should be your favorite because it's always been my favorite piece, too, Johnny. Thank you for your picture. It's wonderful. Just how I dreamed you'd look. And it's tucked away safely beside your wonderful letters. No. On second thought, I think I'll get it out and keep it on my bureau, where I can see you every morning and night. I can't get over how many things you like that I like, Evie. Books, movies, places to go. It's really remarkable, you know. Makes us pretty special people for each other. Don't you think so? I know my surprise will fit, Johnny, dear. Because I knitted it just the same size as your shirt, 16 and a half. A wonderful surprise, Eve, darling. And exactly the right size. Now, I have a surprise for you. My unit's being transferred. 
and you'll never guess where. You inherited a million bucks, or you inherited a million bucks. Better. Much better. Welcome down to earth and tell Mama, child. He's coming. Oh, how nice. Of course, he might be anyone. You don't mean? Yes. Wouldn't you know? Oh, the world's too small sometimes. When, Evie? His letter just said he was coming to New York. It didn't say when. But it sounded sort of hurried, like he might have mailed it practically on his way. Stand still, please. And anyhow, I... I feel things about Johnny. You never even met the man or talked to him or said howdy-do. Barney, some people have a, well, an affinity for each other. And where Johnny and I are concerned for... Oh, oh! he's here. It might be the landlady. It's Johnny, I know it. Let him in. No, no, I will. Well, tell him there wasn't time to trot out a brass band. Johnny, I... Oh, yes? I'm Edgar. Hmm? Edgar Larson. Hi. Friend of Johnny's. Oh, oh, I see. Uh, I expected... Well, won't you come in? Thank you. Uh, this is my roommate, Miss Lee. This is a friend of Johnny's. Edgar... Uh, Larson. Just call me Barney. Uh, thank you. Just call me jo- Edgar. Edgar? <laughs> Just Edgar. Did Johnny come to Brooklyn with you? Well, he came, but at the last moment he got a special assignment... A secret mission. Overseas? Yeah, on a bomber. A big bomber. Oh, no. He asked me to come in his place. There wasn't time to telephone. He did write, but I could bring the letter faster than... So, uh, here it is. Oh, will you excuse me while I read it? No, go right ahead. They've been corresponding for quite a while. I know. Oh, quite a bit about you in this one, Edgar. Well, I... He certainly thinks a lot of you. Well... I, I think a lot of Johnny, too. Let me read you this part. Oh, no, please. Oh, don't be so modest. Go ahead, Evie. Well, he calls you his best friend. Let's see now. Oh, here. I know he's not much to look at. Oh, why, I don't agree with that at all. Well, uh, big nose. <laughs> but inside, he's true gold. He understands about us. I hope you'll make his furlough as pleasant for him as possible. Isn't that like Johnny, though? Isn't it? <laughs> Always thinking about others. Didn't I tell you, Barney? You told me. Well, since Johnny isn't here, Private Larson, will you give me the honor of your company this evening? Johnny told me you were wonderful. You two will have a wonderful time, I can see that. We will, won't we, Edgar? I'll listen, and you'll tell me everything you know about Johnny McPherson. <laughs> You know, I like dancing with you, Edgar. I'm glad, Evie. Is Johnny a good dancer? Well, we dance a lot alike. I can't imagine it somehow. What? Johnny on a dance floor. <laughs> it's funny, I, I always think of Johnny, well, striding along with, with the wind blowing his hair or... Standing on a mountain crag, silhouetted against a full moon. Sounds like a book jacket. What? Well, I mean, Johnny does do ordinary things, sometimes. Oh, I'm sure he does. You want some more coffee? Oh, no, thank you. 
Oh, you, you probably think I'm silly. Oh, no. Believe me, I, I don't, Evie. Oh, I'm just romantic, really. I wouldn't want you any other way. Too few people nowadays take the time to be romantic and sentimental. Well, that's funny. Oh, it's serious. A very serious lack in our modern society. No, I mean, Johnny said exactly the same thing in one of his letters. Well, I, I probably picked it up from him. Holy smoke. What's the matter? Look at the time. I, I've got to get back to the camp. Oh, I didn't realize it was so late. Why, this evening has flown. Your roommate was right as far as I'm concerned. About what, Edgar? Having a wonderful time. I have tonight, Evie. I guess I'll never forget tonight. Ever. Hey, Johnny. Asleep? Uh, oh, I can see you're not, pal. Lying there dreaming with your eyes open. What do you want, Wolf? I was looking for some toothpaste this afternoon in your stuff. All right. Yeah, I found the toothpaste, thanks. Okay, okay. Also, I found something else, pal, a letter. What? Take it easy, take it easy. You'll wake the guys. I didn't read it, but I saw the envelope. Return address, Eve O'Connor. Care of that shirt? Why, you big... Take it easy. Pipe down, will you? I... I recall that address, pal. On a letter that was in my shirt. On a letter that you threw away. Then I got to thinking... My picture you wanted for your folks and your great aunt's picture, 875. <laughs> you little Romeo. I didn't think you were up to it, pal. Honest. What's she like? No, no, not one of your tomatoes or, or lollipops or mice. Uh, stringy hair and glasses. Huh? Yeah, that's right. Stringy hair and glasses and, that, and a whiny voice, too, Wolf. Well, well, well. Wolf, was, it, was her picture with that letter? It was, pal. Wolf, listen. Yeah, I'm asleep, pal. If you say anything to anybody about I this... I said I'm asleep. Shh, sound asleep. And dream in most pleasant dreams. We'll be back with Act Two of The Letter to Evie, starring Marsha Hunt and Hume Cronin, in just a minute. Letter to Evie, starring Marsha Hunt and Hume Cronin. When Evie sent her picture, Johnny sent a post portrait of his massive, Adonis-like buddy, Edgar Wolf Lawson, to sustain Evie's illusions about his diminutive self. When his unit is transferred to Evie's hometown of Brooklyn, Johnny calls on Evie, masquerading as Wolf, a confusing deception and fraught with inflammable situations. The fuse is lighted at the moment when Johnny, unaware he is followed by Wolf, calls on Evie for the second time. Edgar, what, how sweet. Hyacinth. Well, you wrote they were favorites. Johnny told me. Oh, it was very thoughtful of you to remember, wasn't it, Barney? I think Edgar's a love. I looked up the movie page in the paper, Evie. There, there's a revival of Wuthering Heights playing, and... Johnny said you liked the picture a lot, so... Oh, we'd love to go, wouldn't we, Barney? Well, uh, Edgar, you'd probably rather be alone. Why, that's ridiculous. Oh, sure. 
We'd enjoy having you along. Sure. Well, I haven't been to a movie this week, so if you're sure you don't mind... Now, who can that be? Uh, maybe you've got a date you forgot about. Oh, don't be silly, Edgar. I'll get it. Uh, get my coat while you're there. It's in the hall closet. All right. Yes, who did you... Oh! oh. What's wrong, Evie? Johnny! Evie! It's you. Oh, Johnny, you came at last. Evie, more beautiful than I dared to dream you'd be. What's going on here? You! Hiya, pal. What are you doing here? He's coming in right now. Oh, give me a hat, Johnny. Thanks, Evie. Well, old pal. Just call me Edgar. Edgar Larson. Call you who? What? Oh, <laughs> sure. Eddie, old pal. Uh, you asked me. What did you ask me again? Oh, now we're a foursome. How cozy. Oh, Johnny, dear, this is my friend, Barney Lee. I've written you about it. Hi. Hi. Johnny. You're not A.W.O.L. Who, me? From the secret mission. Oh, it's all right. Edgar told us about it. Edgar? You remember Johnny, the secret mission? The, uh, oh, uh, the secret... Sure. <laughs> yeah, well, it was postponed. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that is, the mission was postponed, so I, I came right over here to see Evie. Oh, I'm so glad, Johnny. Thanks for taking care of things, Eddie, old pal. Glad to do it, buddy. <laughs> well... <clears throat> You and me, we've got a lot to talk about, Evie. Yes, Johnny, haven't we? Come on, Edgar. What? Can't you see they're dying to be alone? But I... Well, go up on the roof, all right, Edgar? The stars and a moon. Take it easy, Wolf. Wolf? That's his nickname at camp. <laughs> Edgar's called Wolf? Well, it's, it's incredible. Isn't it, though? Well, we've fixed up a sort of penthouse on the roof. It's so warm I won't even need a jacket. Uh, come on, Wolf. See what I mean? Stars in a moon. Huh? Edgar, if you're thinking about Evie, she's signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, but she and Johnny have only written to each other. They don't really know each other. They're getting acquainted right now. I think I'll go down and... What's that thing? Oh, that darn bottle of rubbing alcohol. We had it up here this afternoon. I had a Charlie horse. Rubbing alcohol? Mm, Evie fixed it up for me. I could hardly walk for a while. Rubbing alcohol. Barney, I'd like your advice. About what, Edgar? Suppose someone, someone you thought a lot of. Someone you were in love with, you mean? Suppose she, or he, was in a spot and didn't know it. And you did. You'd try to help, wouldn't you? Get her or, or him out of it, if you could? Well, naturally. Even if you had to pull off some sort of stunt? Oh, I'd do anything to help the man I loved, Edgar. And you'd use whatever happened to be handy to do it. How do you mean? Never mind. I, I've got an idea. Barney, I think you're one of the most entertaining girls I've ever spent an evening on a roof with. Why, Will? As a matter of fact, why don't you and I go to that movie and... Leave those two alone together. Oh, that's a wonderful idea. Come on. Oh, wait. What's the matter? It's an hour till the second show. Well, we can spend the hour up here. Well, except that I'm cold. Do you remember my complaining about it? Oh, well, let's go inside and be comfortable. Well, you see, Barney, I hate to barge in on them, sit around knowing they wish we'd clear out. Well, it's only an hour, for heaven's sake. Well, an hour can seem an awfully long time under certain conditions. Well, you know what, I'll bet they've gone out themselves already. Could you look to see? I mean, 
Isn't that a skylight or something over there? Yes, there sure is. Right over here. Um, I'll peek and make sure. Empty this. I mean, I hope I can make them believe me. Um, what do you see? Oh, they're still there. Good. I mean, uh, they are? That Johnny's some talker, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. He talks as well as he writes. The Evie will be in seventh heaven. Maybe if we go down, we'll scare them out. That's an idea. Come on. Oh, uh, don't forget your bottle of rubbing alcohol. Here. Thanks. You know, I... wait a minute. What's the matter? This bottle's empty. That's right. Well, it was practically full a minute ago. I drank it. How could it be full one minute and that... You drank it. It's my, my big weakness, Barney. I can't resist it. Oh, but Edgar, rubbing alcohol, it'll kill you. I, I was cold and I had to get warm. Yeah. Wolf, uh, I mean, uh, Edgar, I, I, you... Little chicken, Barney. You, you know, you're, you're luscious. You're adorable. You're ravishing. That stuff can make you awful sick, Edgar. I've been Barney. drinking it for years, for years. Oh, and, and you see, I'm not cold anymore. It's wonderful up here in the roof garden. Moonlight and a lovely girl. I've got to get a drink of water. Barney, little chicken Barney. You know, you're, you're my type of girl. You're feminine. You're strictly feminine. Edgar, I have a headache. You're feminine. You're feminine and I... I'm masculine. Male male and female, that's where we are. Barney, Barney, little chicken, where, where are you going? Oh, inside, I'm going oh, wait, inside. Wait for the old wolf. Wait, wait for me. What's the matter, honey? Oh, I don't know. It's funny. You, you can think that you understand all about a person, but you never do till you meet them. Oh. Evie, uh, <clears throat> I've got to make a confession. Yes, Johnny. I'm, uh, well, uh, awkward with words. Except on paper, that is. I guess because I'm naturally sort of a shy guy. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm glad you are, Johnny. Why, I wouldn't like you if you... Johnny, save me! Johnny, what's the matter? He's drunk. Uh, oh. Where's oh. my little chicken? My fluffy little... Oh. There you are. Oh, he drank my rubbing alcohol. <laughs> Johnny, please, do something. Drunker last night, and I, I got drunker the night before... You'll have the landlady up here. I'll take care of you. Hey, pal, you're making a fool of yourself. My, my pal. My old pal, Johnny McPherson. Oh, the wearing of the tartan is a pride long to behold. Please, Johnny. Cut it out, you fool. Get him out of here. Yes, you'd better. Come on, you're leaving. My, my pal. I, no, I, I won't, won't go home without my pal. Hey, hey. Damon and Pythias. <laughs> or vice, vice versa. And not going to stir a step. Not one step without Johnny, boy. Oh, dear. Good old Johnny McPherson, the pride of Buffington, Connecticut. <laughs> I'm sorry, Johnny. I'm afraid you'd better. Yeah. Come oh, on, you. the wearing of the tartan is a pride long to behold. Shut up. Johnny? Johnny, will I see you tomorrow night? Wild horses couldn't keep me away. All right, you. Out. What a pity. I feel awful. Such a nice boy. Drinking rubbing alcohol. I wonder what could have driven him to that. I know. You do? What? It was me. He was cold and I... You what? I resisted him. 
Take it easy, kid. You dirty double-crosser. Uh, well, you faker emptying a bottle of rubbing alcohol in the roof and saying you drank it. Listen, I'm all washed up with her after tonight. I know that. But she's not for you. Okay, pal. Keep away. If you don't, I've got to tell her everything. You heel. All right, I'm a heel. But I'm still your buddy. Ha. And I'm going to prove it. Tomorrow morning, I'll make a phone call that'll show you I'm through with her. And I want you there when I make it. Fine. Don't worry. I'll be there. Uh, you, you, you listen to this now, John. I'm listening. You gave me your right number, it's huh? It's her office. She'll answer. Shh, man. Hello? Evie? Yeah. Uh, look, I've got bad news. That special assignment is on again. I'm leaving in ten minutes on a bomber. I'm disappointed, too, but you know... Say to her, that's kismet. That's kismet. Okay. Goodbye, Evie. She's all broken up. Not as bad as she would be if she knew you better. Well, she's all yours now, Johnny. Call her up. Make a date. Yeah. She'd want to make a date with me after last night, wouldn't she? Well, tell her you want to apologize. Take her to lunch and talk it over. Yeah, that's right. I, I ought to apologize. Can't take her to lunch, though. My family's due in from Buffington to spend the day with me. Well, another time then. Hey, look, let me a nickel, will you? I did you a favor. Now I'll do myself one with a cute little trick at Bryant 10031. Sure. Here you are. Thanks, kid. Uh, <clears throat> see you later, Johnny. Okay, well, see you later. Hello? Hello, Evie. Yeah. Well, well the brass hats have changed their minds again. The mission's off. <laughs> yeah, I love them, too. Seven tonight, okay? Right. Pick you up at your apartments. My land, such a dinner. Yeah, such a gab fest. You've pumped Johnny dry, Mother. That girl you wrote about, your pen pal, Evie O'Connor. Have you seen her yet? Yes, last night. Did you like her, Johnny? I don't think I made a very good impression, Mom. I'm not surprised, you know. You were your father's son. <laughs> Memory like an elephant. Good impression. The first night your father came to see me, I was never less impressed by man, boy, or dog. Yeah, it threw me out, practically. Oh, kind as you please and sweet, but it was the bounce, all right. But the next night he was back again with a dozen roses. He was? And he kept coming back again and again, night after night. I liked her father's cigars. Until finally I realized he cared, really cared. Or he wouldn't have put up such a fight, would he? You've got to fight, I guess, for what you want. Well, when I realized that, I suddenly woke up to the fact that I was in love with him. But, Johnny, where are you going? Uh... You'll be in again next week, won't you? Yes, well, but... Well, I'll skip seeing you to the train this time, then. Okay? On one condition. But I'm going to put up a fight. Are you, son? You heard what Mom said, Dad. After all, I am my father's son. It's our first dance, Evie. You, me, your apartments, our favorite record. 
Yeah, maybe our last dance, too. Johnny, don't. Only meant we'll be going over soon. Oh, please. Don't spoil my make-believe. I'm pretending that you're never going away. Johnny? Hmm? You know something? What? I've never been so happy. At, at first, I wasn't sure, but I am now about you. Am I what you imagine me? Well, no, not exactly. No? You're so much more wonderful than I thought... than I thought any girl could be. <laughs> Remember our first letter, Johnny? You thought we'd never meet. Oh, but I knew we would. With each letter, I knew it. Johnny, you do feel the same way about me, don't you? You know I do, honey. So help me, I never thought I'd say this to any girl, but who the blazes is that? Well, I can't imagine Barney's out on a date. Well, whoever it is, tell him to go away. Hello, Evie. Edgar. I brought you these, Evie. A dozen roses to say I'm sorry about last night. Hope you'll forgive me. Who is me. it, Evie? Well, it's Edgar, Johnny. Oh, no. Well, I, I guess you'd better come in, Edgar. Well, those roses are beautiful. They're very sweet and... and... And you're just in time to hear some wonderful news. Well, 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 well. Hiya, Wolf. You told just this morning, you said to me... You had a hangover this morning, Wolf, old boy. Not much wonder either after last night. Johnny, shouldn't Edgar be the first to know? Know what, honey? That we love each other. Oh, Edgar, I'm so happy. Wait a minute, wait. She's right, Edgar. Oh, Wolf, old pal. We do, all right. Listen, did you explain about the letters? Well, no. Tell her. Now. Evie... Evie, I'm... I'm not what you think I am. I, I don't care, darling. Evie, listen. Don't th you see? The letters don't matter. I know the real Johnny now, and that's all I care about. And you love him? Oh, yes. And I love her. It couldn't happen, but it has. Wait a minute, will you? Th th this is going too fast. I, I... Evie, will you marry me tomorrow? Oh, yes, darling. I'll marry you any time you say. But you don't understand. And Edgar can be your best man. Won't that make everything perfect? Oh, no. Hume Cronin and Marsha Hunt will return in a moment with Act Three of A Letter to Evie on the MGM Theater of the Air. Back to our story of the lightest side of the war, A Letter to Evie, starring Hume Cronin and Marsha Hunt on the MGM Theater of the Air. When Private McPherson began a pen pal correspondence with Evie O'Connor, he made two mistakes. He described himself as a giant of a man, which he certainly is not. And he enclosed a picture of his buddy, Edgar Wolf Lawson, saying it was his own. The result? Evie thinks Wolf is Johnny, and Johnny is Wolf. And after one of those sketchy courtships that go with a war, Evie has promised to marry Wolf. However, the best laid plans of girls and buck privates in the U.S. Army can be shunted astray by fate in the uniform of a captain and a sergeant. 
Set your clock for 3 a.m., Sergeant. We going overseas? Just set your clock for 3. Yes, sir. One moment you could be planning a wedding. The next, find yourself seated on the deck of a ship in convoy bound for Europe. I didn't write these sailing orders, Johnny. Don't talk to me. Could I help it if we shipped out the morning I was supposed to marry the girl? I said, don't talk to me. I think you'd be glad about it, kid. Oh, sure. Of course, we didn't get a chance to say goodbye or anything. But you didn't want me to marry her, and now I have I didn't want her to be hurt. Now she has been. I didn't write those sailing orders. You said that before. Wolf, I'm going to write to her. Tell her everything about you and me. Oh, kid, you can't do that. Can't I? Just watch. You said don't hurt her. That will, Johnny. She'll be disillusioned, mad, plenty hurt. But she's got to know. Sure, when we can tell her. You can't explain a thing like this on paper in black and white, pal. You've got, you got to say it. Well, maybe you're right. But naturally, the letters begin again. What? The most beautiful letters you ever wrote. You mean keep up this lie? Johnny, she's got to get some letters. I can't write them, but you can. But, uh, I you can't... started this whole thing, remember? You answered the letter she put in that shirt pocket at camp. I know. Don't remind me. If you want to finish it by breaking her heart, just stop writing now. Yeah, go ahead and do that, kid. Okay. Okay, I'll write. The most beautiful letters I ever wrote. I heard you. But I warn you, Wolf. When you see her again, you're not going to hurt that girl. You understand? I won't have her hurt. I refer to Directive 76463, Paragraph A, Subsection 3, entitled Buttonholes Stitching Of. Here it is clearly stated that... Evie, you aren't getting my dictation. What? Oh, I'm sorry, DeWitt. That soldier fella sailed three months ago. Three months, two days, 14 hours. And you go around dreamy-eyed, acting as if you had a date with him coming up in 30 minutes. It, it's his letters, DeWitt. His letters? Oh, here. Here, let me read you part of his last one. Evie, my dear, may I remind you there is a war on? We do have contracts to fill, supplying shirts to the armed forces. Oh, here it is. Listen. England is beautiful, but there is room in my mind for only one thing. Evie. And the incredible thought that you are mine, waiting for me. Oh, the, the rest is sort of personal, but... Well, do you see what I mean, DeWitt? I do, Evie. Do you see what I mean? Hmm? About what? You see? Not listening. Head in the clouds. Evie, will you ever come down to Earth again? Oh, I... I hope not, DeWitt. I very much hope not. <laughs> Let me through here. Let me through. Whoa! Hiya, Johnny boy. What is this? What's going on? Yvonne, hey. Oui, mon chéri, mon Edgar. This is a wedding, pal. Meet the wife. Wife? My pal, honey. So? Like uh, Damon and Pythias we are. Wife? Wedding? But you can't do this to Evie. The name is Yvonne. You're too late, Johnny. C'est la guerre. Her papa gave her to me, and the Sarge gave me to her. And we've got to be moving up. Let's go! Au revoir, papa. Au revoir, mama. Au revoir, mon chéri. Whoopie! Whoopie, when you come back, 
take me to Milwaukee? Just as soon as this terrible war is over, baby. Listen, Wolf, what am I going to tell Evie? Just tell her I was captured. By the free French. And so, darling Evie, we're finally moving up. In this war, most of the marching songs are inside the men. I know mine is. And it's your song, Evie. Our song. Remember? It's going with me straight across France. So if I don't answer certain parts of your letters, don't worry. It's just that we're moving so fast, mail can't keep up with us. In one letter, you mentioned wanting to visit France after the war. I'd like to do that too, darling. Everything in the world looks different to me when I see it through your eyes. No letter for nearly a month now, but I'm not worried. I know it only means that there'll be a lot more of them when we finally catch up with me. All wonderful. All you, my dearest. And in conclusion, I shall miss the annual factory picnic as much as anyone, but with a war on... Evie, my dear, you're crying. No, no, I'm not. Still no letter from Johnny? It's been two months to it. Two months. He wrote so regularly, and then all of a sudden, he, well, he just stopped. And I know something's happened to him. Evie, there's only one solution. I thought of it last night. And this morning, on my way to the office, I decided to do something about it. Here, my dear. What? A railroad ticket? To Buffington, Connecticut. Johnny's home. Oh... I'll do it, I can't. I... You've got to, Evie. The train leaves tomorrow morning at 9.10, track 4, Grand Central. Oh, but I don't even know if they know about me, that, that we're engaged, I mean. Well, he's never mentioned them once in his letters since he went away. You want to find out about Johnny, don't you? What What's happened to him? Oh, yes. His folks will know. I'll tell you what. You're a, a casual friend who happened to be passing through Buffington. You just dropped in to ask the latest news of Johnny. Oh, it, it might work that way. Of course it'll work. Now, go home, take the rest of the day off, pack, and tomorrow morning, get on that train and find yourself some answers. Hey, Ruth, who do you think is in the living room? Evie O'Connor. Evie O'Connor? Come to ask about Johnny. I'll bet she was crazy about him the whole time, that boy... Well, come on. We can't leave her sitting in there all alone. Yeah, me without a tie on. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, Miss O'Connor? Oh, hello, Mrs. McPherson. Uh, oh, I was looking through this snapshot album that was on the table. Oh, there's some good pictures of Johnny in it toward the back. Oh, uh, sit down, my dear. Thank uh, I told Mr. McPherson I was just passing through, and, well, Johnny and I were sort of pen pals. We corresponded a lot. I know. He told us how much your letters meant to him. Well, I haven't heard anything for a while. I got to wondering how he is. We were pretty worried, too. Yeah, he was wounded, you see. Wounded? For a month, it was touch and go. Oh, but he's all right now, in a hospital up in Boston. He's here, in this country? Due to be discharged from the hospital in ten days. <laughs> you can't keep that boy down. I, I didn't know... I mean, oh, you'll be interested in this picture we took of him last weekend, my dear. Uh, give me the album, please. Well, he looks thinner. Uh, you'd know he'd been sick. But it's our Johnny, home safe and sound. Do you think he's changed, Miss O'Connor? 
I say, do you think he's... I'm just... sorry. I don't understand. The cane is sort of a shock, isn't it? But this can't be. Wait a minute. There was another picture in this album. I just saw it. Here. Oh, oh, yes. That was taken at training camp before they went overseas. Johnny and his friend, Edgar Larson. Big bluff fellow, Larson. Looks like a lumberjack, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, he does. Johnny said the boys at camp called Mr. Larson Wolf. <laughs> you knew he married a French girl. He married? Oh, yes. Our Johnny attended the wedding. Oh. Uh... Miss O'Connor, are you all right? Oh, of course she's all right been a shock hearing about Johnny, but now everything's going to be fine, isn't it, my dear? There's nothing whatever to worry about now. Evie, honey, here, drink this hot milk. I don't want any hot milk. It'll help you sleep. I don't want to sleep. I just want to die. Oh, that head, that heel. How could he have done such a thing, getting married when he was engaged to you? After all the things he said to me in those beautiful letters. Now, wait a minute. It was the other one who wrote the letters, wasn't it? Yes. He's the one who made a play for me, the dirty little wolf. Oh, Evie, stop crying. Now, they're not worth it, either of them. All he wanted to do was humiliate me. Who? Johnny. Wolf. Both of them. Say, say, which one were you in love with? The, the one who kissed you here that night, or the one who wrote the letters? Well, it was with... It was, it was with... No, no, I mean... It... Oh, I don't know. I don't know which one. Oh, I hate them both. Both of them. Bonnie, can you get there? I'll try to get up on the roof again. Coming. Oh. Hello, Evie. It's you. I know you don't want to see me, but I've got a message from Johnny. You have? From Johnny? Yes. I'd like to hear that. Come in. Evie. I've, I've got bad news. Johnny's dead. Dead? But he died loving you. I, I know because I, I was with him at the base hospital. And you were with him? To the very end, he said, Edgar, I want you to take this message to Evie. Tell her I'm sorry we were never married and give her this. His tag. John P. McPherson. Five oh two four one six seven nine. And this? Oh, the Purple Heart. He said, "Tell her I loved her ever since her first letter. I loved her every time I wrote to her." Oh, Johnny. When I finally met her, I thought that she was the most beautiful girl in the world. He meant every word of it, Evie, and and most of all, he he wanted you to be proud of him. I'm beginning to be very proud of him. You must be. Always. He was a hero, Evie. Everything you'd want him to be. You see, there was a patrol cut off. A combat patrol. Somebody had to get them and guide them back to our lines. And Johnny volunteered to do it. Well, you know Johnny. Yes, I know Johnny. Well, uh, that's all, I guess. I, I had to come and tell you. Where are you going? Oh, back home. Goodbye, Evie. Wait. I can't keep this. The Purple Heart? The 
But he wanted you to have it. It's Johnny's. I know. And I've... I've just discovered that I love Johnny more than I thought I did. But I can't keep it. Evie, listen. Because it belongs to you, Johnny. You know. I know you, Johnny. Evie. Oh, Evie. Martha Hunt and Hume Cronin will return in just a moment. Inasmuch as we have two stars this week, we'll have a three-way interview. If that's agreeable, Hume and Marcia. It's agreeable, Howard, as long as I know the answers. Are we playing questions and answers? No, this is a drama, not a quiz program. However, I'll ask you a question, Marcia. Uh, did you have a lot of fun playing in the Shaw play? Oh, yes. The Devil's Disciple was great fun, and that Chavian dialogue is a delight. Well, the MGM Theater of the Air hasn't got around to Shaw yet, but with actresses like you, you never can tell. You never can tell. Is that the Shaw play you're going to do? No, I had, I had something in mind like Canada. You, you'd come in handy in that cast, too, Hume. Marchbanks. Now, that's a character I'd love to play. Yes, and, uh, and you could play it to the hilt. In fact, for my money, you can play almost anything. Uh, thank you, Howard. As an old MGMer, I must admit that there I did play almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> You've been a standby with us. I remember the postman always rings twice, the beginning of the end, the seventh cross, and other many excellent performances. Hey, can I get in on this? I'm an old MGMer, too. Well, Marsha, you've been on the program before, so I was giving Hume a big turn. Oh, that's fine with me. I'm one of his real fans, too. And I'm one of yours, Marsha. Uh, enough compliments. We're at the end of our rope, so to speak. Thank you, Marsha Hunt and Hume Cronin. Thank you, Howard. Thanks to you, Howard. Another listening to A Letter to Evie, starring Hume Cronin and Marsha Hunt, adapted for radio by William Kendall Park. Original music composed and conducted by Joel Heron. The program was directed by Marx B. Loeb and produced by Raymond Katz. The supporting cast included Stotts Cotsworth and Florence Robinson. Ed Stokes speaking. A Letter to Evie, starring Marcia Hunt and Hume Cronin, the radio adaptation of their hit movie on the MGM Theater of the Air in the summer of 1950. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. We're going to go out with the song that was the number one hit on Top 40 Radio 50 years ago this week. Having topped the Billboard Rhythm and Blues chart, it went on to stay at number one on the Hot 100 list for two weeks. A ballad written by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong it turned out to be the last single that featured Eddie Kendricks as the lead singer of The Temptations. Recorded November 24th and December 3rd, 1970, in Detroit, Michigan, for Gordy Records, it's The Temptations' Just My Imagination, Running Away With Me. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Thank you.